Tonight's episode of the Tuesday Night Cigar Club is brought to you by Drew Estate. Come experience the rebirth of cigars at www.drewestate.com and download the free Drew Diplomat smartphone app today to discover nearby retailers, RSVP to special events, redeem points to win exclusive Drew Estate merchandise, and much, much more. Brothers and sisters of the leaf, coming to you live once again from the corner of no hope, it's the Tuesday Night Cigar Club Podcast. Tonight, the boys welcome industry icon Pete Johnson of Tatuate Cigars to the show to discuss the 2019 cigar documentary, Hand Rolled, while the gang smokes his wonderful La Verite 2013 Churchill cigar. Oh, and they also drink the new Metallica beer. But the less said about that, the better. Masters of Pilsners? I think not. So sit back, folks, light them up, and enjoy the show. Well, boys, I'm sure you both had plenty of rest for tonight's big show. Uh, For those of you listening to the podcast rather than watching us on YouTube, I just did a massive eye roll. Seeing as how the new Disney Plus streaming service just launched yesterday, and if I know you two numbnuts like I sadly do know you two numbnuts, I can only imagine how many hours of Boba Fett and other nerdy shit you've been I gobbling actually, up. I actually haven't watched it. I've watched uh, the old Tailspin cartoon from not the early 90s mm-hmm. and the old Gargoyles. That's what I've been kicking on. As I I'm said, saving Mandalorian for this As weekend. I said, Star Wars and other nerdy shit. Uh, you've been, you've been, you haven't slept in 48 hours, have you? Sleep is for losers. You son of a bitch. Uh, and what God is my witness, if any of you two at any point tonight mentioned that Han's that Han didn't shoot first again, because I guess they went back to that version, I'm out of here. I'm packing my shit, and I'm out of here. I don't want to hear it. Oh, no. I, he didn't know, and now he's going to be all perturbed all evening. Wait. No, no. no. Uh, <laughs> Get out of here. Welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday Night Cigar Club, episode 106. Uh, 106? Yeah. Hey, that sounds pretty Our good. livers are still kicking. Uh, barely. We're, uh, we're going to do things a little differently tonight, in a good way for once. Uh, so I'm going to ask Yak Boy, totally out of sequence, you're in the hot seat. Real quick, give me info on tonight's two beers. Tonight's two beers. We have from Stone Brewing, out of California, from... A little bit of a uh, spinoff, their Arrogant Consortia Brewing. This is the, with 
a it's called the Internight. It is a collaboration uh, with Metallica. Mm-hmm. It's a beer that represents, as they say, a cataclysmic collision of two uncompromising supernatural forces. Does this beer sell out? Every case in the store. I'm assuming so. <laughs> I hope so. Because it is a Pilsner, which I was like, why are we doing a Pilsner? But this one is actually, you know, it takes from the, the California, the West Coast style IPAs. This is a Pilsner at 45 IBUs. Hmm. So most Pilsners are, are much less, 20. But So this is like double that, so it actually has a little bit of bitterness to it. It's kind of like the the Hans, where they kind of amp up the IPAs a bit. The Hans Pills? Correct. IBUs? And it's, it's uh, about... Uh, 5.7 ABV, so it's a little little kick to it. Any coincidence that they just released the Enter Night Pilsner and James Hetfield and Metallica just went back into rehab for alcoholism? Probably. That's total coincidence. Total coincidence. Okay. He's uh, dedicated. And this is, and as I said, it's from Stone Brewing. Stone uh, it, uh, started in uh, San Marcos, California. In 1996, yeah, they've been around a while. They Still have, does good work. They, they do, do right? good work. Uh, they're very well known. Their their flagship beer is their Pale Ale, but also from this, eventually came to one of our favorites, the Arrogant Bastard. Who are you calling an arrogant bastard? I'm calling you an arrogant. No, the beer. Oh, of course. But uh, they are now currently headquartered in Escondido, California, and have since their their founding have grown by leaps and bounds, and has moved on they are the largest brewery in southern california and the eighth largest craft brewer in the united states not to be confused with the other stone the keystone oh do they do they make keystone (laughs) they do no they they do not they i think they you know that has bottled beer taste in a can oh it's it's a great tagline who's who's the biggest brewery in california sierra uh uh rogue rogue no, excuse me. I'm, I'm not... Uh, You're on the hot seat. You're on the hot seat, pal. It's in San Diego. Um, you don't have to answer that. We'll get back to it. Uh, I thought the Too hot, many things. You get me... I thought the hot torpedo, folks. What was that? Uh, uh, Sierra Nevada. Sierra Nevada yeah. was probably one of the biggest, no? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, we, we did this beer tonight uh, because our special guest, who I'm going to introduce in a minute... Uh, comes from a musical background, which we will talk about this evening. And we already did the Megadeth beer. Couldn't find the Iron Maiden, the Trooper beer. Very much, yeah. It's it's hard. They're to still find. rocking. They never sold out. Oh no. Uh, there's no black albums under their resume. But I saw this and I'm like, you know what? Fine. Uh, but then we just got a sixer of this. Then we're gonna shift gears. Into a beer from my favorite brewery in North America, my beloved Unibrew. Yes. In Quebec. Tell us more. Unibrew, uh, originally a Chambly, Quebec, hence, and for the name of the beer this evening, the Blanche de Chambly. Blanche de Chambly. Which on the on the bottle we're going to see is a little 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 castle, little fort, uh-huh. which this is what they're naming it for, which. Blanche de Chamley is uh, white of Chamley was the uh, for them this is one of their their original beers uh, when they uh, started back in '93 uh, uh, was a, a first bottle a refermented uh, ale produced by Unibrew it is brewed from a blend of pale barley malt wheat malt and unmalted wheat uh, as well as a blend of selected spices and hops uh, it's only partially filtered. 
So when you know we've done many of theirs, uh, we've done the the Maudite, we've done uh, the Don de Du, the Don de Du, one of our favorites. Love that beer. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> so it's it, like I said, it's partially filtered, so it's gonna have it's still gonna be it's a natural cloud of the yeast in there. So it's one of those where you know the bo- even after it's bottled, it's gonna change slightly. It's gonna continue to. Kind of like a barley wine. It just gets better with age. Yes. And uh, this one, of course, is, is very light in comparison to the Inner Night. It's uh, 5% ABV and only 10 IBUs. Okay. What is the ABV on the Metallica beer? The uh, ABV is 5.7. 5.7? Well, it's not like it's killer. How are you going to make a song Seek and Destroy and then come out with a 5.7 beer? Just saying. That was 20-year-old Metallica. That was 20-year-old Metallica. Okay. Let's not talk about Kill Em All. Let's all right. All right. There's no ride in this beer. Uh, this is not going to be a theme for the night where I it's totally revisit my childhood and, and he does it every, every night. Every he's doing it now. He's thinking about it. Show us on the doll where Metallica <laughs> hurt you. Uh, okay. Well, I and I obviously picked the uh, the Unibrew the uh, Chambly because our uh, cigar tonight has its uh, origins, sort of, uh, which Pete, which our guest will tell us more about um, in France. And uh, I think it's a really interesting story. And when I s- think French beer, I automatically think up north to our Unibrew folks. And there's one we haven't done yet. So here we go. All right, folks. Uh, as I've alluded to, we do have a special guest tonight. Followers of the show will, of course, remember us featuring several Tatuaje cigars on the show over the years. Uh, I believe our last one was around this time. Last year, we paired the Tatuaje Michael monster cigar with the latest Halloween movie when it came out in theaters. We yeah, like these... Did, I, yeah. I believe we like the cigar a lot more than we like the film <laughs> yeah, itself. Yes. Which was disappointing. Uh, and the doctor who's not here tonight, he and I did an exhaustive set of website reviews. Yeah, yeah uh, I actually did a whole bunch of them. TuesdayNightCigarClub.com, go there, where we took each uh, Tatuaje monster and I reviewed the cigar, he reviewed an entry from the franchise... You know, I did the Chucky cigar. He did Child's Play two. He did the Jason cigar. I reviewed Five Thirteen Part Three, or vice versa. Yeah. Uh, but we tackled. There's a ton of stuff on our website uh, digging into the Monster series, as well as the Tatuajes we've done on previous episodes. Um, so those those were those were a lot of fun to do those tag team reviews. So having laid all that groundwork tonight, we've got a rare treat for you, as we are joined by one of the biggest names in the cigar industry. An icon, if you will, and I don't use that word willy-nilly. He's a musician. He's an owner of one of the most popular brands in the world. And now he's a movie producer. That's right, folks. I'm talking about Mr. Pete Johnson of Tatuaje Cigars. Pete, thanks for joining us here in the corner of No Hope, and welcome to the Tuesday Night Cigar Club. No, thanks for having me, guys. Can you uh, hear me okay? Yeah. yeah, yeah, can you hear me fine. Uh, I've been listening, obviously, so I have a couple questions for you about the beer. Sure. Is Budweiser not the biggest brewer in Southern California? Um, I'm sure they are by that, but I mean, in terms of just craft beer. I mean, okay. in terms of the, the macro brewers, yeah, there's nobody that beats them. But for the micro brews, this is, uh, Stone is one of the largest. Isn't there like no, a- I, I only ask because I kind of sold out when I was younger because I was sponsored by Bud Light. Ah. Hey, I've played in so actually, many bands no, that were sponsored by Bud it Light. Actually, it was actually Budweiser proper. They were they had a program where they would sponsor bands back in the yep. uh, early nineties, late late eighties, early nineties, and uh, 
we got picked through a battle of bands to be sponsored by Budweiser, and they gave us a bunch of money and a bunch of like swag to promote with. But we'd still drink uh, Miller Genuine Draft on stage. <laughs> I was about to say we got uh, we got into experts in hiding different beer under a Bud Light label. Yeah, Tut, Tut toured on the country music yeah, circuit uh, in the late nineties oh, right for several years, a uh, keyboard player. Yeah. And uh, so I'm familiar with the Dodge and the Bud Light sponsorship, yeah. but I am very thankful for that Bud Light sponsorship. My uh, freshman year of college was actually sponsored by Red Dog. <laughs> Remember those guys? Uh, well, they should have. They should have. Uh, real quick, smoking a Ladwania? I am. Um, you okay. I can see the band, that's why. Uh, tonight uh, is a rare one. Actually, we've never done this before, 106 episodes. You guys got the, the really fancy cigars uh, that I wanted to do tonight, that I've been looking forward to doing for months. Uh, my sinuses... I, I smoked a cigar last night for the first time in a couple of days, hoping I would get some something going. I mean, so I'm actually going to smoke the cigar that you guys are smoking, uh, the La Verite, 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 Verite. That's why he's here. La Verite, uh, La Verite. Um, yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually going to smoke it next week and uh, and compare my thoughts to what you guys do. But uh, I, they look like they smell really good. But I'm not, <laughs> they uh, do. Like, <laughs> do they? I don't. I don't want to be like, oh, this is just this. this is so the tastes are just blending. You just have you looking at me with puppy dog eyes the whole time. Uh, you, you guys are swell. Uh, well, Pete, first off, uh, doing a little bit of uh, very little research uh, before we talk tonight. I noticed a few similarities between Pete and myself. Uh, we both started smoking premium cigars due to celebrity influence. Mine, I yeah. talk about all the show, was Arnold. Uh, Pete, who was yours? Uh, it was actually a mixture of people because I saw like a one of these shows on Entertainment Tonight or E or whatever it was called. Whatever it was back then, they had a news report about uh, people getting together for a charity function. And they were all smoking cigars, and they were all dressed up really nice. I'm like, that looks kind of, that looks cool. I want to do that, too. Yeah. Uh, So there's one. Uh, We both smoked our first premium cigar, not not the cheapies. Uh, First cheapie for me was a Grenadier I stole from my uncle. Uh, But back, first real premium cigar back in 1991. It kind of crossed around the same line. Uh, Mine was a Punch Royal Coronation Tubo. Uh, Oh, great one. Tubo. (laughs) <laughs> Did I say that? Right? Yeah, sure. uh, Close enough. Man. What was yours, Pete? It was a, a uh, Pleiades or Pleiades. I think they say Pleiades, but Pleiades. It, I don't think the brand. I don't even know if the brand exists anymore. It might, but it's. It's. I don't see it anywhere. Yeah, that's a new one for me. Okay. Pleiades. Um, they had like they had a, a whole series that surrounded by the stars. And I can't remember what size it was, but it was a peak Corona, and it had some star name or some lunar name to it. Very mild cigar, and I believe that uh, at the time, Manola Casada made it. Oh, okay. Um, third, we were both bouncers at some point in our <laughs> lives, and probably the least said about that phase for both of us, the better. So I'm going to leave that one alone for now. <laughs> And uh, the fourth thing, we both love dogs. 
Yes. Pete's a, a, a Rottweiler guy. There you go. I'm a miniature dachshund guy. Don't laugh. Wiener dogs <laughs> have a place uh, in the order of things, too. Um, and Rottweilers and wiener dogs get along famously, I hear. Yes. Uh, my uh, my first girlfriend in California when I moved um, from Maine in in 1989 uh, bought two miniature dachshunds, uh, one for me and one for her, and they were named Rhythm and Beast. Rhythm and Beast. Yeah. Hey, if we ever do a band, that's our name. <laughs> Rhythm and Beast. Oh God. I'm Rhythm. You're Beast. That makes sense. Tut, you're the keyboardist. <laughs> you don't get a cool name. Uh, okay. Well, with all those similarities, well, you think you th- with all those with all makes those, they get more respect. Yeah, they do. <laughs> with all these similarities, you think Pete and our paths would have crossed uh, before then? But um, no, I'm just glad to finally get you on in the dog park somewhere. It's you know <laughs> you can't take mere dogs to a dog park. You're asking for trouble. Uh, Pete, you tell a great story about your first job at Gus's Cigar Shop. Uh, was that L.A. or Sherman Oaks? Yeah, Sherman Oaks. Sherman Studio Oaks. City, Sherman Oaks. Okay. Yeah. Uh, where they, they brought you in on Sundays from your, your strip club bouncer gig, and while your original job was mixing pipe tobacco in the back, kind of grunt work, you spent so much time in the goddamn humidor studying the cigars, analyzing their profiles, their price points, that they eventually had no choice but to move you up to the register. It reminded me a lot... Uh, and then I'll stop these comparisons. But it, but it did. It oh, reminded me a lot around that same time period of how I lived in the video store. Uh, my mom worked there, and I would just read the backs of every VHS horror movie and study them. And I knew more about these movies, you know, than anybody did walking in. If people would walk in, and I, you know, I don't work there. I'm just, but I would recommend. If you're trying to insinuate that you two are the same people, can I be friends with Pete instead? No, what I no. Well, I thought he said the reading, reading the backs of the VHS porn movies. I wasn't sure what he said. Did you say horror or porn? Horror, horror. <laughs> no, Pete. For God's sake, my mom worked here. That I mean, doesn't mean okay. anything. Well, I mean, you were a kid, so I'm I don't know what was behind that curtain that sixty percent of their customers went behind. But anyway, uh, my my point here is. Obsession is a weird thing, isn't it? You never know when it's going to hit you or why, but for some reason in that humidor you got obsessed with cigars to the point to where, you know, much like a, a little Cade in the video store, I mean, that, that became kind of your driving, you know, you woke up thinking about cigars, and and who would have seen that coming? Obsess- I, I just find I'm fascinated by how people become obsessed with different things. Yeah, I was uh, constantly on the busman's holidays. You know, the, the busman rides the bus when he takes a holiday. I was at the cigar store even when I didn't have to work. I just wanted to be there. So, yeah, I was obsessed by it. It's it's It grabs everyone differently. And, Pete, you've done so many interviews that touch on your career trajectory, the hurdles you faced, the successes you've amassed. I'm going to kind of skip over a lot of that juicy stuff because I think there's some other podcasts and articles that have have dug really well into that. Um, So if it's okay with you, I'd kind of like to talk about a few things that, doing my research, uh, I just never really kind of got a clear grasp on as far as your background and what brought you to this point. Uh, I've heard you compare blending cigars 
and the artful packaging of cigars to the work of a writer, a painter, or a musician's process. And I think as a filmmaker, that's one of the main concepts that drew me into the cigar culture, that, that artistic side to it. Do you think as a musician, you, you were seduced by that creative artistic side? As much as you were in those humidors and smelling those cigars, you know, you're a musician, you're an artist. Do you think you would have been drawn in as much if it weren't for the that aspect of the industry? Um. No, I mean, just being creative in general and loving um, art forms, I think that's what drew me in. I, I, I realized that I met a lot of people early on that, that really showed me that the industry was a, a really good, solid core set of people compared to, like, the music industry where most of the people really suck. Um, well, you should know that. I mean, like, just they're horrible people in the music industry. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people will steal from you in two seconds. The people I started meeting in, in the cigar industry really made me feel at home. But the, the creative part really kind of uh, really kind of got me into the whole um, lock into the obsession part with knowing that there's there's an art form behind it. But, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I got so into the cigar industry is because I needed a job. And, and having an outlet uh, where I could express myself, even with... You know, mixing the pipe tobacco in the back room, it was uh, something different than than running around with a clipboard at a strip club. Right. Well, you had that. What you just said reminded me, and I've actually got it in my notes. And I looked everywhere for this quote, and I couldn't find where you said it. So I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but it always stuck in the back of my brain whenever I thought about Tatuaje or about you. You said something to the effect of the music industry just never made sense to me, but I understood the cigar world. And once we decided, you know, almost five years ago to kind of put filmmaking in our, you know, we spent a good portion of 20s and early 30s as an underground filmmaker directing films to kind of do this podcast and kind of step our feet into the cigar world I knew immediately what you meant uh, because it just resonates so much because while I could never crack the film industry nut when we dove into the cigar world I both did understand it way easier than the, the film world and I found that unlike the film world it was highly welcoming and extremely helpful uh, the community in holding my hand along the way the only limitations on how far I wanted to go and learn were on me. I wasn't beholden to anything or anyone to grant me a golden ticket for access or success. I mean, it, it was just night, and I can't I, I imagine the music industry, like Pete said, it's just Pete's absolutely right. same amount of assholes. It is a bunch and of if sharks. anything, you have the majority of them not wanting you to succeed, not wanting to help you. And the cigar world was just the complete opposite of that. It has been the complete opposite of that. And... Um, you know, and then later on, I heard Bill Murray say a, a similar quote. Uh, he's like, when they're like, "Why do you go to all these PGA events and do all these?" Like, the golf world has been very good to me. They're very nice to me. Like, I come from a business that's cutthroat and and sucks the fun out of things that should be fun. And here, it's it's embraced. And you know, I, I think that's the beauty of the cigar world is just how welcoming and how the antithesis of the entertainment industry, if it is. Pete, what was your 
give me give me some of your background as a musician. I mean, were you playing in high school bands and then made the move to L.A. or? Yeah, I was in a. I was actually. It's funny you, you guys are drinking the Metallica beer because I was in a band that that kind of rode the lines of Megadeth, Metallica, Iron Maiden. Um, I had multiple bands that I was in throughout high school and junior high, but um, the last band I was in was more heavier, like that that Metallica style. When I moved to L.A., I went out on vacation for two weeks to L.A. and realized that that was the place I needed to go to if I wanted to become a rock star. Um, just the scene was popping at the time, and um, I left L.A. in... Uh, the end of 89 and joined my band which was much more of a hair metal band we were kind of like skid row okay and war uh that style you know very pretty boys with long hair and uh you know some people had blonde hair dyed blonde hair i think we actually hated our singer when he dyed his hair blonde Um, what was the name of the band it was called hung jury Nice. That's awesome. Nice. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> of course, it played into the well hung jury. It, it played all over the place, but uh, <laughs> it we, wor- it works on many we levels. Went, we ended up changing our name because we we had lawyers and management that told us that okay, listen, you can't. If you're going to play a show, we don't want anybody knowing that you're playing it. You can't advertise. You're going to play the show because we don't want anybody showing up. So they would they would send us off to uh, like dives downtown Los Angeles. Um, to play these these shows that that no one would show up just so we would get tight like they would send us off to Hawaii for two and three weeks at a time and just play a dive club as a as a house band for three weeks yeah just so we would get really tight so we changed our name to the amazing albino hermaphrodites um I gotta tell you, I I, I prefer hung jury. Right, right there, no one was gonna come see us, right? Uh-huh. Um, but it was for a purpose. Um, we did that for, wow, I want to say that was two and a half, three and a half years, and uh, we had a good time doing it. But it was like that that story of almost famous. You you're almost there, and you never could quite get there. Sure. So um, when, so when you were working, I found the, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. When you were working at Gus, when you were working at Gus's and you started to get into the the cigar culture, were you at that point had you stopped playing? I, I had at the at the time I was I was I had stopped playing uh, because I never really found a a band that I wanted to be in. I did start playing again uh, shortly after that with a guitar player named John Lowry. Um, his girlfriend actually fiance or wife uh, was a dancer at the same club and uh we met through a couple of friends and he needed a bass player for a band that he was in or they were trying to get rid of the bass player and the singer uh of this band because they wanted to change their style so they brought me in and it was with uh this kid named john lowry who became a very famous guitar player named john five um and Randy Castillo, who was uh, Ozzy oh, Osbourne's good uh, yeah. drummer. Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah. yeah, I know that name. And is is that Johnny Five? Is that? Yeah, John Five. Yeah. Okay, uh, but yeah, yeah, Randy Castillo. He played with Ozzy for years. Yeah. yeah, he played with Ozzy, Motley Crue, a bunch of people. But uh, they wanted to change the style of music, 
they were uh, kind of a heavy metal biker style band and John was extremely talented and I had an idea to kind of mix um, Nine, in, Nine Inch Nails and Nirvana together oh, okay the interesting part about it is that uh, when we started writing music which was very much you know grunge meets Nine Inch Nails um, the the producer that was producing everything said I got a great singer for your band let's bring this guy in and that guy wouldn't come without his own bass player so I got booted from the band oh, that's why oh, I hate shit. It. <laughs> that sucks uh, that's the music I, industry. That's, I mean, that's the music industry. I always that hated the, the fact that it was very cutthroat. Like you could be in a band one second. I mean, we broke my my original band, Hung Jury, broke up because our singer decided he didn't want to scream for a living anymore. And the next thing you know, uh, he joined a band where he was screaming. <laughs> I was like, I don't even know what happened there. Uh, so I, I jumped around from band to band for a little bit, uh, trying to find a right fit, and I never really. I never really found anything that was super cool. Um, some was just for the sake of making sure that I could still play. Yeah, right. Because I never, I never lost that that feel for playing. Uh, I still play yeah, to this day, but obviously when everybody leaves the office. Yeah. That that sounds so familiar. I mean, we still once a year or once every two years we'll dust off the filmmaking suitcase and do a short film or something just to keep the rust off. And because yeah, we still love it. I mean the. The, the podcast and our adventures here in the cigar industry they, they certainly scratch a lot of creative itches but yeah I mean you got to keep that you got to keep that tool that exercise uh, those late muscles at, working late at night 2 a.m Tuttle household that piano fires up you fire up the keytar my wife yells at me <laughs> uh, well Pete you sound like a man who knows your music so I'm gonna assume that you hated Metallica's sellout shitfest the black album as much as I did oh. I uh, I actually, you know what, I I never really loved Metallica after Newstead left. Well, that, that that's true, but that that was right in the center of Newstead's uh, residency with them. And as a kid who grew up just living and dying by Slayer and Metallica, I the August 1991, I snuck out of my grandparents' house. They were having a midnight release. You guys have heard this story so many oh, times. Oh, yes. Ad nauseum. I snuck out of my grandparents' house. I was in Ohio on on vacation for the summer. I went to the mall three miles away. I walked it at midnight because Sam Goody or Musicland or Hastings, whatever, was having a, a release party for the Black Album. I went. I grabbed it. Went back to my grandparents' house. Popped it in the Discman. Put my headphones on. And you've never seen... What was it? 91? I've been like 12. I don't know. You've never seen this many tears pour out of a young man's face. <laughs> right? I mean, every song, my hero is just withering into, vanishing into, who are these people? What is this? Feelings? Emotions? It was... It was they, they called the Black Album, August 91, I called it my Black Summer. I, I was I was toast for months. I wouldn't I couldn't Can can I get a little something to drown my feelings? Oh speaking of the beer, enter night, I call it enter disappointment. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not getting much out of the beer, you guys. 
Well, you're not tasting anything right now. <laughs> Come on. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I am getting actually a little more bitterness than any Pilsner I've ever had. For a Pilsner, well, it's pretty nice. Uh, like he's, he's right. There is a bit more bitterness, but there's a lot. It's, it's a very crisp beer, which I do appreciate. And I will say this. It's 29 outside. I wish you guys would love some stout so I could get some nice. <laughs> hey, I did this for Pete. But, I mean, it's not a bad Pilsner. No, I would, uh, you should have done a stout. Uh, well... I went on a full a beer binge for a while, and I, that's all I drank was Imperial Stouts. Well, maybe if Winger comes out with a stout next year, we'll do we'll feature it on the show. We can have Pete, we can have we'll Pete, Pete back, and we'll, we'll do see, another we'll, show. Wouldn't that be the, the brewery that would be the sellout if they did a, a, an Imperial Stout uh, for Winger? For Winger. <laughs> <laughs> it's only nine <laughs> ABVs. ABVs. Oh, why sorry. Why why is it when you think of a stout that the first band that comes to mind is Winger? I don't know. He mentioned Winger earlier, and now I'm going to be picturing Kip Winger everywhere I go oh. from now on. You know, he's well, like a he's like a big time orchestral composer now. He, he yeah, I don't know, but his his brother was a good producer. Uh, yeah, Kip Winger is like a, a big time. He does uh, orchestral stuff now, oh, and all right, uh, still a good looking dude. Uh, not saying that, yeah, but go back and listen to that song. She's only seven. Oh no! I, I, I occasionally I'll turn on the the hair metal nation on uh, Sirius, and that comes on. I'm like, oh, this is just so wrong on so many levels. Uh, the eighty. We we say it a lot here on the show. We do a lot of eighties movies, and we're like, how the fuck did they get away? With? Oh right, the eighties. The eighties. It was the wild west of morals and well, really anything. Uh, okay, we'll stay. The only thing that never came out of the eighties was Bill Cosby. <laughs> Uh, hey, for once, we didn't bring Cosby into it. Usually, we're the one bringing Cosby up in a conversation. Uh, that's, why was, that's why I was laughing. I, I like Pete. All right, we'll, we'll stay on the music theme uh, just for another minute. Um, you know, one, one of my main inspirations for creating this kind of oddball podcast that we do here, uh, where we come at the cigar culture in a different way and, and kind of introduce things to different people in a different way, uh, there's a California record label called Ipecac. Uh, their main man, Mike Patton, who's a front man of legendary bands uh, like Faith No More, Mr. Bungle. Unlike Metallica, never sold out. Greatest bands ever, but I'll digress. <laughs> He's notorious for not giving a shit about expectations or industry norms, and I've always gravitated towards that kind of odd fellow approach uh, to everything I do. And I think Pete might as well. You do something that interests you, that challenges and satisfies you on a creative level, and maybe, just maybe, others will find you, discover you, what you're doing, enjoy it too. But all, along the way, it's kind of a mainly a selfish endeavor. You're doing this it for is. you're doing this for you, and it's just a blessing if, uh, if it's a blessing if others find you and appreciate it. Yeah, the, the I mean, every cigar that, that I, I produce with the Garcia family is made for my palate. If I don't like it, I never produce it. That's the luxury of making cigars. We we don't like something, we just don't have to produce it. Um, so it, the bonus is when actually other people enjoy it too. So if, if I like it and I know I'm proud of it, the bonus is when people say, yeah, that's really good. And so it, it's hard and it's disappointing when you hear people say yeah i actually hated that cigar that that's tough that's a tough pill to swallow that's like my black album sometimes (laughs) uh yeah uh and we get that a lot actually uh i think we probably get it more than pete uh well you know a lot of people like their cigar podcast or cigar media kind of 
um, you know, tell us the release dates. Tell us about the Leafs and you know what the he- what the hell are you guys coming in with all this other crazy nonsense. And that's fine. There's a lot of other venues that do it beautifully. Cigar Coop, Half Wheel. I mean, that's that, that's there's people that do those things wonderfully. Uh, we just always kind of had this idea that we sit around and smoke cigars and drink and talk about films anyway. What if we did it in a way that where maybe people would tune in for film talk or beer talk and we're just glowing over these cigars and they've never had a cigar and it's like, God, man, God damn, these guys made that cigar sound delicious. Uh, I'm going to go try that. So you guys are doing it for yourselves. Pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And like you said, you're not going to sell a cigar that you don't smoke. Uh, We wouldn't do this if if we weren't probably going to do it anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you wouldn't do it if you weren't having fun at it either. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Real quick. Speaking of which, uh, how's your how's your cigar treating you fellows? Oh, it's very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a it, it's it's a nice little breadiness to it that I'm really really kind of a creature. It's breadiness across the paddle. There's a little bit of spice on the retro hill. I love the rustic feel of it. Uh, the the wrapper, just the way it holds in the hand, is just very very. Like you're like very big on the physicalities of a cigar, the oh, way, yeah. the way it feels, the way the smoke. I'm sorry, the aesthetics. The aesthetics is part of it. I mean, no, it sure is. The way the smoke travels up. Kind of like what what Pete was saying earlier. When when you see, you know, I hate to say the celebrity influencers or whatever, but when you see those people, they look cool. It's the look of the cigar. It's the look of the. It's the smell of the cigar as well. Uh, so that to me, that's very important. As well. uh, the aesthetics are always part of the experience. Oh, I agree. Yak boy, what are you getting out of this sucker? I agree with Tud. There's a little bit of breadiness there, but on the beginning, when I lit up, there was um, there was a very chocolatey taste. I really enjoyed that. Okay. And I was just you know ever since then it just it's mellowed out. There is a little. I'm getting less pepper, but I'm still yeah. getting very just a slight. Okay. Mm. This is the uh, I should mention this is the uh, La Verite, uh, 2013. Hey. Did I say it wrong? Did I say it wrong? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> La, yeah, you could say no it more, in, in, in layman, so you could say it verite. No La, more, if you no want to say blues, it in cold no green blues, verite. Like cigar, because it's got a nice in, in bit French of In French, it's like verite. <laughs> de la verite. There we go. What was the other tattoo I that I couldn't say? Negocion? Or? Negocion. Negoci- did I say it right? <laughs> yeah, I, finally said, I finally said it right. Well, it, it, it's a soft tea, but yeah, you can say negotiant. Negotiant. Maybe I just need to have a cold. And, uh, so I, I, I need to know. You, I, I can tell it's either the nine or the thirteen. Uh, what year is it on the band? The uh, thirteen. Thirteen. Okay, so that was my last this version is, that I did. correct. This is uh, the Churchill of the the last one, and I understand, Pete, that there's another coming soon. Uh, or or well, they're, they're started, currently aging? I started working on one. It wouldn't be aging yet. I started playing with blends because the tobacco's not ready, so I can't really make the cigar yet. Um, the first attempt completely sucked. Uh, so <laughs> I have to go back and, and try some other versions of it okay. to see if we can correct it. <laughs> if it. If it doesn't work out, then I'm not doing it. Um, no, I'm just picturing like there's been times where you know we were in a we we would do a live taping from the board, and I I walked off that stage going, damn that was good. Got back the next morning, listened to it. Damn, I was drunk. It's <laughs> not good. Sponsored by Bud Light. <laughs> um, 
Well, real quick, I guess since we're talking about the cigar, I, I'm kind of jumping all over my notes here. Pete, can you tell us a little bit about the the verte and the? I, it's a very unique process and approach to blending the cigar. That's why I chose it. It the minute I started kind of reading up on the cigar, my ears perked up uh, because it is very unique in the way you approached the blend process. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, it, it's it's definitely a. a uh a one-off type of thing. This is a, a project that I started around late 2009. Um, I was in the factory and we were walking by the pilones of the tobacco from their first crop that was at the end of 07, beginning of 08. So when they planted it in 07, they cropped it in 08. So that why, that's why the first vintage was 2008. So Somewhere in 2009, we were walking through the pilones, and we decided to start rolling up tobacco to taste the tobacco off the pilone, and it happened to be really good. So I had an idea that, okay, listen, I want to do a project off of just that one farm, because at the time, it was the only farm that Garcia's owned. Um, The farm's called Estrella. It's right in the center of Esteli, and it was the only farm that they had. So I didn't really have many options to play with, but I said, listen, I, I want to create a cigar with just that tobacco. And they thought I was completely nuts. Uh, because when you talk with a, a tobacco grower or, or a, you know, a roller or even a blender, they'll tell you you need to blend regions and you need to blend different characters to get a complex cigar. But I just wanted to try it. Uh, my idea was to kind of theme it around like a chateau uh, wine where it's from one chateau, the grapes come from that one vintage, the the grapes come, you know, they blend it from their vineyards surrounding their their property, and that's basically all they get is that year. So you're doing a vintage. That's what they're using. So, and the joke was, I couldn't, it was, the, the truth is the translation of La Verite, and it was because I couldn't call it no bullshit. And at the time, <laughs> A few of uh, a few of my friends in the industry, we were talking about going on a no, a no bullshit tour to kind of call out every, all the bullshit in the industry. Because I mean, we live in an industry full of romance, and there's a lot of like made up stories about where the tobacco came from. So it it was one of those things I wanted to I wanted to make sure that I kind of almost self regulated myself, you know, self regulated it, and said I'm not going to mixed farms or mixed regions I just want that tobacco and if I come up with a shitty cigar I just don't have to make it the truth uh, we featured only one other single farm cigar on the show uh, two years ago uh, Steve Saka's Naka Tamale uh, which was an- another wonderful yeah. we really liked uh, and I was trying to remember what the single farm one was it was the Naka Tamale uh, single farm cigar and there's just something uh, yeah, I didn't even know that he made that off of one farm. He did. Uh, that was kind of the the that's one of his muestras, uh, and it was just listening to him kind of talk about um, basically what you just did. The the industry looking at you like you're you're a psycho for for even thinking you can get a complex cigar off one farm. Um, but you guys sure seem happy. Yeah. I will be next week. When you talk about Nicaragua, you talk about you know different regions like Jalapa and Esteli. You don't even need to talk about, I mean, there's Cundega and other regions also, Ometepe. But if you talk about just Jalapa and Esteli, that's where you can create a very well-balanced and complex blend. 
So when you're talking about just making a cigar out of all Esteli tobacco, you better be creative with, with trying to tone down some of the spices. And if you taste the first vintage, it's actually pretty medium-bodied. Really? I'm like, no, don't tone those bad boys down. <laughs> yeah, just yeah, full just, uh, throttle it, man. Um, okay, well, thanks for uh, the insight on tonight's cigar. Like I said, I'm kind of jumping forward, and I'm going to jump back a little bit. We were talking about creative selfishness and you know you do you and hopefully others fall in line it kind of leads my next question pete how selfish can you be when launching a new label under the tatuaje umbrella uh or just agreeing to be involved with a particular project like with the garcias uh for instance one of my favorite blends of yours i'm smoking tonight the la duena Yep. Uh, which you blended to cater to the palate of your wife, Johnny. Yeah. Uh, Garcia. It, it was actually, uh, it, it started off as she was a big La Riqueza smoker. I don't know if you know the brand yep. La Riqueza, which I, I, which I also have. She was a big La Riqueza smoker, and she was traveling around to events as like the face of her own company, more so than her brother and her father. Early on, her father was on the road a lot, and then he stopped going on the road and started spending more time in the factory. And I was like, you need your own cigar. So I decided that I would go down to the factory and start playing with uh, components that I knew she liked. And again, I just really winged it. I just went in the factory and I said, okay, I know she likes this, so let me see if I can make that a better machine. And maybe peel out this piece of tobacco and put a different a different varietal in. The, the blend ended up being about a 50-50 split on broadleaf and Nicaraguan tobacco. So USA, Connecticut broadleaf and Nicaraguan tobacco. Um, the funny story is that I, I was doing this for about a year, and Jaime Garcia was sitting in his office. You actually almost got him on film because he came to say hi to me real quick. Um <laughs> He was sitting in his office, and I walked in smoking like a, another prototype of La Duena, and he goes, what are you smoking? I go, La Duena. He goes, no more samples. And I said, why? And he goes, you need to order it. I go, it's not my cigar. You need to order it. <laughs> it's like, I was making it for his sister, so he literally he literally sat there and looked at me like, what do you mean I have to order? I go, it's your cigar. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just the one playing around with it. Right. Well... You know that that might not be because she is in the industry. It might not be the best example. But has have you ever hesitated and held back, or just second guess yourself as to whether you had a new line that you're super fucking excited about, and it makes sense to you? But have you ever had that kind of like, will this be accepted by Tatuaje fans? Can I can I truly market this? to fit in within Tatuaje, and then B, the ultimate, can I sell these? You know, has there ever been a cigar that really worked for you, but just, you know, conceptualized, you were just like, I don't know how to make this work? No, they're all kind of a a crapshoot. I mean, every every cigar that I've done over the years uh, has always been an expression of, of where I'm at at the point in time for... Maybe I'm in the mood for, I was, you know, to use the analogy of, of food. Like, you wake up in the morning and you, you get, you know, cereal or eggs and bacon or whatever. You go to lunch, you get a salad or you get a sandwich. You go to or pizza, you go to dinner and you get a steak, you know. 
I didn't want to eat pizza for every meal. So yeah. when I came down to making new cigars, it was always the expression of, okay, I want something new to eat. And I got I got to the point where a lot of people were like, this isn't a tatuaje. I'm like, it's not supposed to be. Yeah. It's supposed to be its own thing. Like I'm, I'm creating a portfolio and I'm creating a menu, not just one one line. Right. Uh, this is a menu of choices. This is your your big giant wine list, not you know everything from the same chateau. And actually, if I could follow up, uh, you have a very energized fan base, and mm-hmm. they're they're awesome fans. And in today's uh, industry tempo where uh, I hear a lot of manufacturers always talking about having to chase something new, uh, having to always like present something new, and what a challenge that can be. Uh, how do you reconcile always having to come up with new material, if you will, but still try to keep it within bounds of you know that fan base that because the fan base does have a particular taste. You know, that's the reason why you do get the, the complaints about... You're going into Metallica territory here. I yeah, retract I mean, everything I, mean, I said. Well, well no, well, it's, I, it's similar to a musician. Yeah. You want to keep your... It core, really is. You want to keep your core fan base happy, but at the same time, you want to have the freedom to explore uh, and not have some 12-year-old crying his eyes out because you decided to express some feelings. <laughs> uh, no, I agree. I mean, it's... it's a, like again, I make these for myself, so it is me writing a new song, and I'm sure there's going to be a particular part of the fan base that just doesn't like it because they don't like the expression of where I went to. Uh, when I did La Verite for the first time in '08, well, by the time it came out, it was mid to late '010. Um, the '08 La Verite wasn't well received. Yeah. Like it, everybody was excited about it, and then it was kind of fell flat. '09 got a little bit more appeal. But I started kind of questioning whether or not I should continue doing it. And I remember Jonathan Drew, actually, I had a conversation with him. He goes, you know, I understand what you're trying to do with La Verite. Don't give up on it. He, he basically gave me that pep talk. He was like, don't give up on it. It's a really cool concept. Don't, don't give it up on it. In 2010, when I had a, a few blends ready to go, I gave them to some friends and uh, had bands and everything made up for them. And then the uh, the question mark kept on popping up in my head, and as much as my friend said, "Oh, this is going to be great," I didn't I didn't feel comfortable about it, so I actually never produced it. That that I I kind of got another that popped into my head. Okay, so you blend a cigar and you like it, and then a few years down the road, maybe your palate shifts or. Maybe I don't I don't know if this is politically correct to say maybe you grow bored with the blend, but it's a popular blend. Uh, yeah. How do you approach that in terms of you know still having to try to make? I mean, do you ditch the blend? Do you keep trying to make it a consistent? I mean, and to me that's got to be a challenge if your palate moves or you're interested in you know another blend to keep having to come back to that popular blend and you know keep blending it you know year after year to try to maintain consistency. No, I uh, I actually I, I live for the core line. I mean, to make sure that I can have a core line product that uh, that sells every day of the week is is where I'm at. The, the the other blends that I'm doing are just those expressions. Yeah. I'm hoping maybe one will catch because I enjoy it, but it's 
it's there for a purpose. It's not there just, you know, it's not there to take over the, the sales or the spotlight from the original product. I mean, I'm still concentrating more on my original product in Miami than I am on pretty much everything else. Um, just because it still is my core and it's where I started. And I know I can go into that cigar every day of the week and enjoy it. I mean, to go to the music analogy, you go see a band, they're going to play your 10 songs you showed up to hear. What's the Sam Kinison line? The Beach Boys having to play In My Room for 60 years. (laughs) But you get to introduce a few new songs, and at first maybe the crowd isn't too into it, but five years from now, those are the songs they want to hear. You just kind of keep growing, keep introducing new stuff, working it into the, the, you know, your main set list. I'm, I'm dropping all sorts of and music. I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry. Just shut up and play in my room. Uh, <laughs> for the 60th year. Well, I did, uh, I did a cigar that I, I I had out in, like, from 04 to 07. I made a small production of it with a different factory called Nuevitas and uh, Nuevitas Hebrew. Uh, those cigars that back when I discontinued them in 07, I said I would never make them again. When I brought them back out uh, last year, I had a big question mark from the recipients that were smoking it. I, I loved what I was doing with it, but it, w- it kind of got a mixed reviews. And then over the last six months now, everybody seems to be catching on to it. It's a very right good... Now, that's the orange band, correct? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, a good yeah. cigar. That's a. Re- I had my first one not too long ago. It was a very good cigar. So it's one of those blends that, that at first people were like, I don't know about this. And then they they started trying it again they're like wow it's kind of coming into its own place i hate to say this but in the cigar industry it's usually when we make a blend in the factory we enjoy it we love the hell out of it and then somewhere along the lines the factory normally messes something up that's that's pretty much it because it's always like it's new it's like throwing a monkey wrench into it into the factory you're like okay the, the, the machine's already working fine Let's throw this new monkey wrench in, right? And and let's let's see how much they fuck it up. Sorry, can I say that? Oh, yeah, (laughs) trust me. See how they can screw it up in the first few months, and then you somewhere around the you know six month mark they start to get in the groove, and the machine start starts to work perfectly again. Right. Um, Okay. Well, you know what? I'm gonna wrap up the cigar portion of our talk here. with one last thing uh, you've talked at length on other podcasts other interviews much more highbrow than ours and one of the things that I really gravitated one of the stories you told that I really gravitated towards and I think our audience if you'll indulge us uh, because we do have a big drink we've got a big audience of drinkers <laughs> um, and I, I'm certainly uh, over the years have become uh, much more uh, appreciative of wine and, and Todd I know you uh, you as well um, wine drinkers Cody you too I mean leave you out yeah yeah uh, but you did an interview with the get this guys the Bovida podcast the Bovida yeah We've been saying it wrong all these years. We've been saying Bovida. It's Bovida. Ah, I've heard it both ways. Well, is it? It depends on who you hear it from. Okay. Boveda. 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 Oh God! Now a third. 
You're killing me, Pete. But you know, I'm just gonna say Bovita because it's on who who originated the word. Then you have to follow like how they say it. Uh, well, I kept waiting for the Bovita guy to say it. He never said it. <laughs> Excuse me. So you were on. You did a very lengthy podcast uh, with with uh, with the uh, the Bovita, and I encourage everyone to go out and listen to it. It's a really good talk. I'm gonna keep saying Bovita. I can't. I'm sorry. Or Boveda. <laughs> Uh, I was fine Florida. until I heard heard Pete snickering. Uh, <laughs> well, you told the story of with your with your your wife Johnny's help. You wanted to create a wine. Uh, you've been having your feet in the wine making world for some time now to celebrate the Garcia family getting Cigar of the Year back in 2012 for the Florida Antilles. Yeah. Did I say that right, Antilles? No, Flor, Flor de las Antillas. Damn it. <laughs> Dude, you got to get your NPR voice it's, on. I got to take a, some notes. It's the cold. I, I normally say it's, these things. Yeah, it's, it's the cold. I normally cold. say these things perfectly. Well, you told the story. You wanted to make a wine to give to the to members of the Garcia family to celebrate, you know, Cigar Aficionado, Cigar of the Year. That's Yeah. It doesn't get any bigger than that. <coughs> Excuse me. And the story gave such great insight into the creative side of both what you do with cigars and wine. And because one-third of our audience is here for the Beverage Talk, would you mind sharing the story with us? Because y'all basically made a badass wine by utilizing tobacco vernacular. And I think both cigar lovers and booze hounds in our audience would really appreciate that kind of unique process to winemaking you took from a cigar angle. Yeah, um, I kind of always thought about it. It was actually, a, um, I was over there to blend my 2012, finalize my 2011s, and blend my 2012 vintage uh, at the, the the chateau I was working with. And uh, I told Yanni, I said, uh, you should do a wine. And she goes, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. I go, it'd be great for you guys to have wine to kind of share to everybody, your friends and family, to celebrate this big this big deal. Number one, you know, huge, right? And she goes, well, I don't have any idea what you're talking about as far as I don't know what I'm going to like and what how I'm going to put it together. And I said, call your dad. And we were already in France, and uh, we were probably a few hours before we were supposed to go do this kind of mashup. We were going to go sit at tables and and pour beakers together with different wine varietals. And I said, call your dad and, and ask if he had a perfect cigar to tell me the components of the cigar, not like the, you know, the straight up, you know, like, oh, where's the leaf lane and, you know, how am I going to place that viso in there? Tell me the percentage of the seed varietal that would make the perfect cigar for him. And he told us, uh, I think it was like, 35% uh, Corojo, 35% um, was it 35% Corojo, 35% uh, Criollo, and 30% Habano. It's a total of 100%. So I, I walked in there and I said, okay, your Corojo, that's going to be uh, your Cabernet Franc. And your Criollo, that's going to be your Cabernet. And the Habano is going to be your Merlot. Um because just based on the characters of the the style of the cigar, you're like, or the tobacco, 
you can easily pair it with that that wine varietal because of the characters in those wine varietals. Like Criollo is kind of uh, kind of dry uh, and big and bold, so it could easily be either Cabernet Franc or Cabernet Sauvignon. Havano uh, is more um, kind of silky sometimes, so you think of Merlot automatically. Uh, you think of that joke in that movie where it's like, "I'm not, I'm not fucking drinking Merlot." Yeah. Um, but, <coughs> so she went in. I said, "Okay." here's your three choices of Cabernet Franc. Tell me which one you like best. And she sat there at the table and she picked her favorite Cabernet Franc. And then we got to the Merlots and I said the same thing. I think there was four different Merlots. I said, pick your favorite Merlot. And then we got to the Cabernet Sauvignons and I said, pick your favorite Cabernet Sauvignon. It ended up being that she had two Cabernet Sauvignons that were pretty close, but I leaned towards just the one to start and we did the exact component you know percentage blend based on what her father said together and we said okay this is your starter this is your basis let's see where we can go and then we stuck with the percentages but we shifted to adding different vineyards of those components in there so we stuck to the 35 percent cabernet sauvignon but we did two different vineyards and we stuck to you know the 30 5% 5% of the Cabernet Franc, but we stuck to two different vineyards. And the Merlot, we ended up choosing just one vineyard. By the time it was done, I think she had five vineyards in there. And it turned out to be a beautiful wine. It's funny, though. She opened a bottle the other night. She goes, I don't, I just don't like it. There's something wrong with it. I go, it's a baby. You need to, you need to let it open for a while. I actually drank that bottle next day. Like, she had, op- she had opened it on, yeah. I think, Saturday night. And I came back. Uh, Sunday midday for lunch and I opened it and I finished it and it was perfect and I, I looked there I go I don't know what you're talking about <laughs> I love that story I just love the the melding yeah, my, oh, my mind just went the melding of worlds uh, you know between it's a great way to think about it it really is it's such a unique uh, process to, to make a wine and coming from the, the you know the cigar approach to it like I just when I heard it I knew our listeners would really get a, uh, something out of it and you Tut yes, uh, yes. well you. that's that's again where La Verite was kind of spawned from was the, my love of wine so if you look at the label on La Verite not the band but on the label of the box it actually gives you component breakdowns it, of yeah. how much of each seed varietal is in there and I always correlated a cigar varietal with a with a wine varietal. Uh, if you look at it, it was like it was always pairing the classic French wine varietals with the classic, you know, Cuban seed varietals. That uh, <coughs> that explanation actually has me uh, wanting to go back and explore more Criollo. I, I just, I don't like it. That sounds like it's perfect in my taste. Maybe I've just been discounting it. Uh, maybe so. Uh, who Speaking of the, the boxes on the Verte, who does the artwork... Um, on the 2013 box, that kind of uh, it's a beautiful, it's a be- it's very, it's very much in the tradition of a wine of a you know a, a label you would see on a bottle of wine, but that artwork with kind of the is it like trees and and uh, the the colors swirling, it's beautiful, it's be- it's absolutely beautiful. No, I, I I think if I remember the name of that piece, it was called like distortion or something like that or something along those lines. I, I can't remember the name of it. Um, there's a there's a long story to that. The, um, 
So every year, I, I kind of followed Mouton Rothschild. Every year, Mouton Rothschild would put a new artist on the top of their label. And, of course, they had people like Marc Chagall and, you know, very famous Picasso, sure. very famous artists. I, I couldn't very well afford stuff like that, so I decided to put out a few feelers into the cigar market. And I said, if anybody's an artist and you want to come up with a piece of art, I might use it for my label. And if I use it for my label, I'm going to give you a 100-count box. Uh-huh. So uh, the first year, I actually dedicated it to my, my friend Paul Hernandez, who had passed away because he was a old school graffiti artist like he was an OG graffiti artist that used to used to roll with a crew that some of these artists that he used to roll with are now hugely famous and they paint like $50,000 commission pieces um, and I used a piece that he did in Miami for the company Altoids um, and it was basically his tag name and it said SAR S-A-R that was his tag name um, so it was a a piece that he had done on that wall in Miami. The second year uh, was done by an, a lady by the name of Ellen uh, Knowles in uh, Ohio. She, it was actually, I, it was kind of partial to me because it was me and a bunch of friends doing like we were drunk in Bordeaux one night and we were doing balancing acts on a on a umbrella pedestal. And it was, that sounds it, that it was, sounds familiar. That's, 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 oddly, that's not a unique story. And it was called. Uh, and it's all of us standing in weird positions trying to balance on this pedestal. And I think it was called Balancing Act. And, uh, of course, it kind of flows with trying to make a perfect blend of cigar or tobacco because you want it to have balance, right? Sure. Um, and then uh, in 2010, I already put the contest out there for the 2010 label. And this guy named Austin, uh, I'm trying to remember where Austin lives in, like, Nebraska or something like that. He was at an event of mine. He shows up with a three by nine painting of this piece, and then I decided to not even do the the 2010. And I said, "Listen, man, I'm going to pick you for the next one, no matter what." Right. Uh, so finally, in 2013, uh, I picked his art to to be on the the lid. It's awesome. It's it's honestly what. Here, I brought this. I'm sorry, kid. <laughs> <laughs> I promise, though, I'm going to remember you. How could I not remember this? But no, it's it grabbed my attention immediately. Uh, it's just a really, a really. It looks like you're looking at a wine bottle, but it, but I love that artwork. Uh, and once again, worlds collide: art, wine, cigars. Yeah. Um, okay, well, because we don't want to keep you here all night, Pete. That's it for the cigar talk. Let's talk movies. <laughs> This is the I don't first, mind sitting on a little bit of the movie part. This is the first time in almost five years of doing the show that we've had a cigar maker on that was qualified to also talk movies movies and filmmaking. Like actually being part of the process. Co- correct. Uh, we've had some cigar makers on that have been in some films that they, when we brought them up, they were, well, they dropped off Skype and <laughs> threatened us with lawyers not to do stuff. You got the writer. You're not supposed to mention that. Uh, I'm not naming names. Uh, Pete, you are the executive producer of tonight's film that we're talking about every episode. Yak Boy, what do we talk about? A premium cigar. A premium cigar. Craft beer. A craft beer. And a film. And a film. And tonight, the film is, in my opinion, the rather fantastic documentary, Hand Rolled. Can you tell us, Pete, about how you came to be involved in this project and why you obviously felt it was an essential story that needed to be told? 
Well, I always wanted to make some type of uh, documentary about the cigar industry. I had been watching a lot of wine doc- documentaries that I really enjoyed, and they started to do a series of wine documentaries called Psalm. I don't know if you've heard of them. Uh, they had Psalm was the first one where these these five guys um, were taking their there's four guys were trying to take their test to be master sommeliers, and uh, the second one was called Into the Bottle, and that's where all the storytelling came up where they went to different vineyards across the world and they met the winemaker and they heard the stories of where they started and and why they made the wine and how many generations are making the wine. So when these guys, Jesse and Steve, came into the trade show, um, wow, this is uh, 2016, I think. Oh, 16, okay. It was at 16 or 17 when they showed up and they said... Uh, it, we don't pre- want to it premiered, it premiered to- at IPCPR 2018 when we were there. 18. So it was a two-year project at that so point. So that, that would have been oh, 16. Oh, yeah. 16, yeah. Yeah. So they, they, um, they pitched it to me, and I said, listen, if you are willing to look at some of these wine documentaries I'm really into, um, one called Salmon the Bottle, another one called Red Obsession uh, that Russell Crowe narrated, I said... Uh, I'll consider, you know, helping out as much as I can. And I, I'm like, I'm out of curiosity, how much does a film like this, what type of budget are you talking about? They gave me some number. I said, well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not uh, able to do that type yeah. of. Uh, well, we can't get Russell <laughs> Crowe. What's RoboCop doing? Yeah. Well, yeah, that that's another whole story. Um, oh, I'm gonna, I'm so gonna, I'm gonna get to RoboCop. We we did it, we did it on the cheap. But I, I, um, every time they would show me more footage. That's when I was like, okay, here's another check. And it became one of these things like I, I wanted to be part of uh, giving back something to an industry that's been so great to me. It shows. Um, it absolutely shows. I think the hand-rolled team has admirably delivered a film that, given a wider and wider audience over time, it just dropped within the last few months on iTunes and Amazon. You guys, we all rented it on Amazon? Yeah, I rented it on Amazon. Um, given a wider audience, I think it will. It does have the power to change some minds and hopefully open up some otherwise closed dialogue among those who maybe swore they were against all things evil tobacco. And I really believe that the extremely personal stories told in the film from those within the industry, some of these folks in the movie have been in, they've been in the tobacco industry for generations. We're talking the Fuentes, the Padrones. Uh, I'm hopeful... And I believe that the film does have that power to sway some opinions that maybe otherwise wouldn't be swayed. That's the power of film. Uh, that story about when the elder Padron goes on the humanitarian trip back to Cuba. Uh, at this point, he's established in Nicaragua. Um, and he go, But he goes back on humanitarian trip to help secure the release of the political prisoners from Castro. And... Castro asks for one of his Nicaraguan cigars that he's heard so much about, and the media takes this picture of them sitting down at a table, yeah. skews it, and the, en- and the yeah. end result is, you know, Padron's a traitor, he's a communist. Now getting bombed. They threats. burn down his factory, they firebomb his Miami offices. Like, you know, documentaries that lack those power punches, like, I thought I knew cigar history somewhat that story floored me holy shit yeah, like, yeah. oh my god and, and and to see this you know this gentle 
I don't know how old he is at this point, but you know he, he's telling these stories. And at the end of it, he says this great line like, eh, "I'm still here." And it was just like, "Oh, that's yeah. that's just so fucking awesome." Uh, but it was yeah. just such an and and you know they they do the right thing with the approach to this stuff where they incorporate just the right amount of archival uh, old news clips, you know, of JFK and the Cuban crisis. Castro, even the or, the Batista in the early days of, of Cuba, you know, they, they, I thought they balanced. Boy, they really found a nice treasure trove of archival footage to I, really sell this stuff. I thought they did a great job of humanizing everything. Uh, they made the audience care because you actually see. Uh, I, I'm not a I'm not a cigar historian, so for me this this documentary was very pleasant because I got to learn a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't know. But as a, I could see as an outsider, you're not just looking at brands. You're not just looking at brand X, brand Y, brand Z. You're seeing the actual stories, the families, the workers. You're seeing the human element to what makes that company to where, uh, you know, uh, I think I'll use the term cigar family over and over and over again. And I thought that was quite appropriate because it wasn't just company, company, company. It was family, family, family. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Pete, was that the ultimate goal of Handrolled, to put human faces, real people and their real lives, kind of into the bigger discussion of premium cigars? Yeah, I mean, Jesse and Steve wrote uh, the whole film, you know, based off of what they heard from everybody, and and the more they listened to the people's stories, they really kind of started focusing on, you know, the humanizing factor and and teaching, telling the stories of, like, how these people are just normal people that just grew up in an industry <clears throat> in a world that they've been living for generations. Um, I think the big key of the movie was really to, Jesse and Steve's goal was they were hoping they became huge cigar fanatics. They were already fans of cigars, but they they just fell in love with the industry. How could you not go into all these amazing factories and talking to these uh, these fascinating people? I mean. It's kind of a cream dream from a, a cigar <laughs> from a cigar nerd standpoint. I mean, yeah, how could you not just go nuts? Um, they, their biggest goal was to make sure that, that that cigarettes would never be associated with cigars ever again. I, th- I think the film does a very good job of that. I, I absolutely do. Um, although there was the there was my favorite moment in the film when they discuss cigarettes. They're showing the automated process of you know like. How many premium cigars are made in a year compared to how many cigarettes are made in a day? Yeah. And listening to RoboCop tell you about the automated process, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of ironic. Uh, okay. Uh, I got a question. Is well, the that's P- a little deeper then? <laughs> yeah, right. Is the PCA and the CRA sending DVDs of the film to every member of Congress to kind of open their eyes? To this beautiful industry that we all love, so and they're so hell bent on fucking up. I mean, yeah, I are mean, they util- are they utilizing this film properly? I actually did a uh, an event with the PCA, um, a, a small little showing at their offices in DC recently, where we showed it to some staffers, so they could go back up to their their you know house you know people, their congressmen or their senators, and and kind of tell them about you know. Hey, this is an industry that's like really mom and pop, and and it seems like it's being lumped into the wrong category, and it's and it seems like everything that, that the bills that are coming up keep on including 
you know, this small family-owned industry that that's really getting screwed by uh, the cigarette industry in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for those listeners who aren't familiar, the PCA is the new name of the IPCPR, which is the biggest kind of trade organization um, representing the industry. Um, well, seeing as how the film is primarily focused on old-school, traditional tobacco families and their personal stories and legacies, it seemed to us that there's kind of a separate tale that's better told in maybe another film uh, where the focus would be, and maybe also effective, on cigar culture over you know the last 10 to 15 years with the advent of social media and the profound influence that certain personalities, like yourself, Pete, have had on the growth of the subculture, especially a young, you know, among twenty-somethings and thirty-somethings, and you know, the fandom. Basically, that's something, Pete, you know a ton about with your Saint and Sinners members, your Tatuaje bus tour. Um, yeah. I think that side of things in a documentary would be fascinating to people because they have no clue that this world even exists. Uh, years ago, Tut and I went to our first cigar festival in San Antonio. This would have been before the podcast. Um, we stood in line for nearly five hours. I'm not fucking with you. Five hours to meet Jonathan Drew. I did not plan that. I had no intention of doing we that. Didn't know, we didn't know it was going to be five hours. And after Was like, he giving away the new iPhone? No, no. no. <laughs> after like hour three, the, one of the guys we're with, he bailed. He's like, Dude, it's not like Tom Cruise. I, I, I'm out of here. I don't know who this guy is, but like, let's just see where this goes. I was, I was actually, I, I was actually from a from a weird outsider perspective because I, I wasn't that big into cigar <coughs> culture and that big into cigars. But uh, you know, Kate asked me to go, and I was like, cool. And then uh, I, I had my camera there, and I was kind of like, you know, documenting this entire process. And we get in this line, and and I knew that Kate was a big fan of this guy. But I'm a big fan of how people interact, and I just I was watching him just do this meet and greet line for five hours, thinking this guy's got to stop pretty soon. And I was like, pretty soon he's going to say, "All right, that's enough," and then he's going to cut us loose, and I'm going to go on my way. But no, five hours it, I stood in that line. It dawned on both of us, Pete, as filmmakers at that time, that there was a unique documentary opportunity standing right there in front of us. The insane brand devotion. I mean, insane. Five hours in line. Uh, the straight-up passion of the cigar subculture, the dynamic and completely unique personality of JD, we thought if we could capture that in a film, it would be a really effective way to introduce non-cigar folks to the cigar world in ways that only a really good documentary could do. You know, entertaining and informative, but it's like, there's something here. Yeah. And, I, you know, I go to, Pete, I don't know if you've seen it, but getting back to music, I wasn't really a fan of the White Stripes. I wasn't really that familiar with Jack uh, Jack White until one night, late at night, I'm flipping channels, and I stumble across the guitar documentary, It Might Get Loud, on TV. Yeah. And it's Jack White, it's Bono. Did I say that right? Bono? Bono. Uh, it's Bono. No, it was Jack, White, Jack White and The Edge. And Oh, The Edge. I'm sorry. Yeah, he's the one who I, I totally the said it wrong. <laughs> the Edge. The, the Edge. <laughs> and uh, Jimmy Page. Yeah. And I'm just transfixed on this documentary. And so for like the next week, I'm gobbling up all the Jack White music I can get my hands on. 
And that's what great documentaries do. And I was like, you know what? There's a story there in the cigar world. These people that go out and see Pete when he pulls in in the Tatuaje bus going on a world tour for cigars. Yeah. Waiting in line to meet JD. These these crazy events. And people outside the cigar world don't know that this subculture, I keep going back to that word, it is a, but it's a big subculture. I think they would find it fascinating. Who knew this was a thing? And who knew that it was filled with these amazing, diverse group of, you know, what, what we love going to the barn smokers every year with Drew Estate. Women of every age group, not just with their husbands, just women, sisters of the leaf. Every, uh, you know, you tell the story about when you go to Washington, D.C. to do film work, going to the lounges and, you know, there's a senator there and there's... I mean, this world brings people together, and Handroll touches on this. Handroll touched on that beautifully when, it, when that guy was talking this. about sitting with the head of the CIA. Yeah. That's hey, amazing. I, I love that story. Handroll touched on this great, but it, it is truly one of these small little ecosystems where everyone kind of is on equal playing ground, no matter what your job is, no matter where your lot in life is, no matter where you're, you know, male, female, black, white. It's like, it's just this... It's just kind of like you got a cigar in your hand. Let's talk, and you know, I, I just, I, I think that it's the, the great equal, it is the great equalizer, and I, and I think the over the last ten, fifteen years, the fact that a lot of brand owners like yourself have been so open to engaging with customers, which a lot of industries don't do. Um, I mean, my God, look how big the craft beer business is. When's the last time the Stone Brewery guys got in a bus and drove around? And, and would anybody show up? No, because Pete's active on on Instagram. He's active on Facebook. He engages with Tatuaje fans. He created a whole goddamn system of saints and sinners, which I believe no one else in the industry has done anything like that. And you've been doing it for years. And next year is my tenth year doing it. Tenth year, I mean, it's and it's and it's uh, it's a fight to get into this club, but I mean, it's just it's just hardcore fandom at its best, and I I, I just love it. I appreciate the I, hell out of it. I think that's where uh, the cigar industry has it right um, in terms of I, I I do a lot of studying on other brands and other CEOs. A lot of times, CEOs try to control the narrative. They try to control their story, and that's part, that's just an aspect of branding. But what the cigar industry does more than try to control the narrative, they just engage. I mean, it's it's one of the most open industries in terms of engaging with ownership and engaging with upper management that I've I've come across. Well, I'd have to say that you know I did an event. I think it was somewhere around 2005, so early on in my the career, my brand. Uh, in Southern California, and the guys from Stone Brewing was were actually the beer of the night, and they actually showed up. And I didn't know them from Adam, but this was before social media, really. So if you think right. about it, they were kind of ahead of the social media craze. By the time they, that social media became so big, now they have like 18 assistants below them, sure. and that's who does their social media. They're so massive now that it's like they've they're kind of out of touch with that that consumer level. Uh, you like that? The the one company I called out that that would that would the one the one brewery I said would never show up. He's like, oh, they actually oh, yeah, came they out. Actually did. They were ahead of the curve, man. 
<laughs> that's how it always works. But you know what? I you know like hand rolled. And like the the guitar documentary, that's the power of an effective documentary. And on that note, I can't see how any cigar virgin who's never torched up a cigar and lit a cigar can watch Hand Rolled without immediately wanting to run out and try a cigar for the first time. I mean, so much of the film is just B-roll inserts of... Sexy fucking shots of guys lighting and girls lighting cigars, cedars. You know the, you know, the, the funny thing the is, is that the first. How could you watch this film and not want to go out and smoke a cigar? I came out to the corner of No Hope last night to to watch the film again for this, and my wife was like, "Why don't you just watch it in the house? You, you can't smoke a cigar." I'm like, "I can't watch this movie without smoking a cigar. It's impossible." <laughs> I did the exact same thing. I actually went outside, and it was 29 degrees. I was bundled up like that kid from A Christmas Story trying to smoke with my freaking long johns going on. It's torture. I mean, of course. Uh, well, a few more questions about the film, Pete. Uh, I, I do want to cut you loose. I know you got to catch a flight in the morning. How did you get Peter Weller, fucking RoboCop, to narrate this film? Uh, the quick story is that Peter's a friend. Um, we used to play poker together in uh, a club called the Grand Havana Room. We would uh, we had a, a group of people that would rotate through over the years, uh, including people like Vince Neal and Mel Gibson and you know Peter Weller. Random people would just be like, "Yeah, I'm going to play poker." They they didn't even know what we were playing. They would still just want to sit down awesome. and play. I was I was the young kid in the group, uh, and they I kind of got invited to the group because I was the guy that knew everything about cigars. Uh, so they had me in the room for one reason, and I was always hoping that I would beat everybody at the table because I needed the money more than they did. Right. <laughs> uh, but um, Peter was getting married in Italy, and he invited to his me to his wedding, and I made him cigars for his wedding. Oh. And we had been friendly over the years, and we'd go down to New Orleans for the trade show, and he he lived in New Orleans part time, so he'd be like, "Okay, come down to New Orleans, I'll show you all around." So he was like the ultimate host also. And, and I saw him sitting at the Grand Havana Room one night, and I was with the film guys, and I walked over to him. I said, listen, Russell Crowe did a wine documentary. What do you think they paid a guy like that? And he goes, probably a bunch of wine. And I'm like, and probably, and he said, and a nominal fee. I go, okay. I go, would you be interested in doing a cigar documentary for me? And if so, what would it cost? He goes, a nominal fee. And a box of cigars. The one, the one hundred count lavarite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was actually a box of twenty five of my uh, Havana Cazadores from Miami, and uh, like a twenty five hundred dollar check. I think oh, wow. five hundred well, agents I, and he does an awesome gift. That's an job. awesome gift. He does a great job. Uh, uh, he's got a great voice for it too. He does. Yeah. He does. And on a side note, for our our film geeks that listen. A very underrated Peter Weller film, Scanners. Oh, yeah, Scanners. Is it Scanners? Trace, uh, what is it? Uh, no, uh, Screamers. 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 Uh, go see it. It's a sci-fi flick. It's awesome. Uh, okay, well, yeah, he, it was a great get. He did really good. Um, I'd actually like to see him more do more of this stuff. Yeah. He has a yeah. really good voice for it. Well, um, he's done a lot of stuff for National Geographic. That's his kind of. That's his thing. Like he does a lot of uh, narrative for National Geographic. Oh, I can see that. And uh, he, uh, 
we had to we had to record his voiceover in the Grand Havana room. Like it was tough to get him to a place that he wanted to go to that was close by. So we had him come to the club before they opened, and we had like cushions from the couches surrounding him so we could get clean voiceover. Right? No, we but understand that. The fun the fun part about it was when he was reading some of the lines. He's like, "Is this true?" And we're like, "Yeah." And he goes, "I never knew that." Yeah. So we we even stumped him on a few things too. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, speaking of filmmaking, just today you dropped a very well produced commercial on social media for your Fosto line of cigars. Oh, thank you. Uh, I haven't seen anything. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> Why well, I, I haven't seen anything quite like it in the industry? Um, is this something you're planning on doing more of for other lines or? It was basically, I don't know if you guys had... I, I, I haven't re- seen it yet. I no, reposted no. it on the Tuesday Night Cigar Club's Facebook page. It's basically a two and a half minute story. Uh, it's a short film, essentially, uh, of this struggling artist um, going through this process of creating something. And the end result, it's very very hard to, to narrate to you guys. But uh, it's very well produced. It's uh, very artfully done. But basically, the end result is this artist creates the Fosto line. Um, it's it's basically the Super Bowl commercial of cigars. Uh, it, 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 looked, into, it, it, it looked great. It ties into the storyline of Faust and the Devil. Yeah, no, it, no, so that it, made total sense. Story, so like he actually Jesse and Steve they put it together for me. Um, I said the Fausto is probably the only one that would work because it's got a story to it. And there's actually a, a backstory. It comes from a history, a part of history. So maybe you can capture something out of there. And what they showed me, I was like, okay, that that's pretty freaking cool. But I had no direct, you know, direction in it other than, hey, can you add my logo at the end? <laughs> so that was actually the hand rolled guys that put that together. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Okay. Hey, maybe the yeah, Tuesday, they're, they're, maybe they're the Tuesday Night guys. Cigar Club could put together a Series P commercial for you. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we, we we have plans. To, I was just on the phone with them uh, before I got I jumped on with you guys. Uh, we have plans to do more of it. Actually, just, I, I was uh, going to ask if I mean I think it, I think it's a great. What's the uh, nobody's the, doing anything like that? I, it was just it was impressive, man. It was really well done. What what what's the number for uh, Jesse and uh, and Pete? I mean, no no no, you're you're stuck with us. <laughs> you're not going off with Jesse um, and the, no no no. You're, you're not going anywhere. Nice try. Well, the one thing, the one cool thing about Jesse and Steve, both of them have a really sick sense of humor. So uh, they have a lot of creativity going. So you might fit in with them really well. Oh yeah, no, I, I, I I, I can see uh, Tut's attraction there. Uh, I have you under contract for uh, several years. Uh, Last question, Pete. I keep saying. Actually, before you get to the last question, because I want to say that it was something that really kind of touched me on. and I, knowing enough about editing and and doing enough of it, uh, I can kind of see where it just kind of might have been a throwaway or something that that might have been a little bit edited. I don't know whether it was or not, but it really kind of touched me. Was uh, I think it was Senior Pepin, and he was talking about buying the automated the automated Devaner, and uh, and then, oh, yeah. and then Pepin. selling yeah. it. And, uh, that is a. We're going to talk once we cut Pete loose. We're going to talk about kind of moments in the film that stuck out to us. That moment where Pepin tells the story about how the factory invested in a Devaney machine, and then once he realized that 
these machines would cut up to, I think it was like 60 jobs, or as he called it, 60 family members, going back to the family. Yeah. Uh, he got rid of them. What other, in this day of automated everything and, and anything to cut a buck, I mean... Yeah, that was. Well, I'm a cynical bastard, so I might have. I've been going. Well, you know, maybe yeah. it was like some mechanical thing that was wrong. He sold it. And no, this is a great PR deal. No, no, I can tell you, I know that story pretty well because um, uh, the the machines came from Oliva Tobacco, not to be uh, confused with Oliva Cigar, but right. They had three machines, and and he they were sitting in the corner of the factory, not do, being used at all. I think they used them like once or twice. And Pepin just saw that it, he would prefer, you know, manual, you know, the hands to do it instead. And he realized that, you know, these were going to easily take up 20 jobs per machine. And one day he goes, he goes, I, I want to get rid of them. And he put them literally in the corner of a back storage area and said, he told Jaime, he says, get rid of them. I don't want them in the, I don't want them in the factory. See, so he, he got, he sold them. That, that, uh, approach to, the caring that these brand, you know, these factory owners and brand owners have towards their their workers and their family, as they call it. Um, since you opened this floodgate, I'll just say one more thing. The moment that caught me off guard in the documentary was where I forget what her title was. It was an elderly woman who was uh, actually we're going to talk about it later. So I'll go ahead and give her some credit. Bertha Bravo. The Guayabara no, lady. Well, no, no, no. She got me with the where they're your family. They're yeah. You're that. No, we're gonna talk about that after we cut you loose. Uh, this one, uh, Panchita. Him. She yeah, was the employee from uh, Hoya de Nicaragua. From Hoya de Nicaragua, she was the chief of quality control for Hoya. She looked like she had been there for literally decades. But she talks about how after Reagan imposed the embargo on all the Nicaraguan, Nicaraguan products into the U.S. They kept growing tobacco, kept rolling cigars. They were reduced only 10 rollers at the tables because of the embargo. But she, these are her words, we just couldn't let this great company that we had established vanish. And this is a factory worker with that kind of pride instilled in her by the Martinez family. And it kind of gave me chills. Well, we interviewed him and I want to work for the dude. Oh yeah, no we we, we interviewed Doctor Martinez. We interviewed his son Juan. They're they're really great people, and I think they're they're, they're a great family. And they're they and they, they they were represented so well in the documentary. But there's so many little things like that. And like Pete said, uh, Ber- Berta, where, where she talks about you know when these people welcome you into their into their inner circle, it, you you almost immediately don't feel like an outsider. And it's not like you're just kind of along your 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 family. And I, I, you know, I think I speak for all of us here. Uh, last two years, we've been on the road with Drew Estate, doing all their events and all that. And it's just it, there is that just uh, welcoming familial uh, sensation that God knows Pete didn't get it in the music industry. I sure as shit didn't get it in the film <laughs> industry. It's just such a unique, beautiful thing, and we have to do everything we can to keep the government from. You know, shitting all over it. By the way, Pete, I'm loving the 2013. Uh, it's just a nice, nice that that it it's not crazy transitioning. It's just that straight flavor from that nice toast. It's got a little bit of soft spice to it on the retro hell that is just so damn consistent. It's great. What about you, Yakwa? Yeah, I like it. I'm gonna agree. You're still with getting the breadiness. I'm getting the breadiness. I got 
I had, the breadiness was a big thing in that actually, even early on. And that was something. It almost seemed like you know that that uh, that yeast fermenting type of thing. Yeah. Sometimes you get that out of a you know a big beer sometimes, but yeah. And again, La Verite is not a Tatuaje. It, it, I mean, it, it says Tatuaje on the label, but it's it's still not a Tatuaje in in the sense of what people think of Tatuajes. Go back to cigars. We talked about everybody expected Tatuaje Brown Label to show up in every cigar that I I released after Tatuaje Brown Label. Well, that's not the case. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And you two, did the chocolate come back or is still I, just I Still, I'm getting I'm getting just getting towards the end here. I'm getting more of you know. It's, I say it's chocolate. It was almost more like a Sweet, but this is towards the backside is more like a dark, a little dark. darker chocolate. Yeah, man. So I, it's I, I can't wait to smoke the cigar. <laughs> uh, all right, Pete. Last question. I promise. Lies. Lies. All lies. <laughs> as a horror, I'm okay, I'm good. As a horror film nerd and a cigar junkie, I just can't help to see all the amazing potential releases that will never see the light of day. Is this truly the end of the monster series of cigars? Because I need a Bruce the Shark Jaws cigar like you have no idea. <laughs> yeah, there's there's no uh, more uh, new monsters. Ugh. I'll keep on I'll keep on going back through the portfolio, but I'm not creating any, any Poss- new monsters. Possibly new Vitolas with the existing blends. The pudgies were great. Yeah. I love the pudgies. Yeah, well, I'll do. Uh, Potentially, I'll be doing a uh, another series like that where it's a it's a set, a collection uh, instead of yeah, a collection instead of just the one monster. Okay, uh, but uh, the plan is to go back to the back to the beginning and, and roll through them again. Uh, that's probably a good thing. That I think not- we're gonna I think we're gonna wear you down, <laughs> and I think eventually. You'll get to the Bruce. Now, now that I have Pete's <laughs> Skype, I will be buzzing him. <laughs> He's deleting the account right after Doing the video. Jaws music. Dun, 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 dun. He's already got it on the phone to-do list, <laughs> Look, man. man I, this account. I had to steal from my little girl's college fund to get this damn Michael box. Uh, <laughs> I almost went in on the Jason box. Jason and Michael were like, I've got to get those. I still haven't found a, a reasonably priced Jason box. But when that when the when the Michael came, I, I'm the biggest Halloween fan in the world, as listeners of the show will know. I, I had to I had to get that fucking thing. Uh, but I, but honestly, I think out of the Monster series, while I really like the Michael, and I think the Michael has a lot of potential for age too. I've got uh, I, th- I think those are going to only get better. Man, I it's weird the 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 horror films that I'm not fans of. The cigars you like <laughs> are tend to be the monster cigar. Like I, li- I really like the Frank, and I'm not a fan of like old Universal horror. Uh, you know, when we yeah. did those reviews, I was kind of ignorant to the old. I've seen them, but I'm not a big. F- oh man, I love the Frank. Oh, I just did a review for the Bride. Yeah, not too long. It was wonderful. I think that was last year's. Uh, yeah, I've never seen the Bride of Frankenstein, but goddamn, it was a good cigar. <laughs> uh, well. Thank you, Pete, for your time, your insight, your class act, and maybe one of our listeners tonight who tunes into the show for the film talk or the craft beer talk uh, will now go out and try a Tatawahe stick because they're all truly missing out on something special if they don't. Uh, which, okay, I lied. This is the last question. <laughs> which which of your cigars would you recommend to a first? If somebody watches Hand Rolled and is like, I've got to smoke a cigar for the first time, what tatuaje stick would you put in their hand? 
I mean, if they want the truest expression of what I do, I mean, it, honestly, I would tell them to grab something uh, made out of the Miami factory first. Um, it's not really up everybody's alley because it might be a little stronger than what most people smoke. Um, but that's the classic. And there are other lines that are good entry levels to that cigar, but that's the one that, that I put on a pedestal still to this day. That's the brown label? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a couple brown labels that are made in Nicaragua, but they're easily you're easy to figure out which ones are made in Miami, which ones are made in Nicaragua. Okay. I never went to I never went to uh, the the whole concept of um, oh I can just make more of the same cigar in Nicaragua and you know and say that it's made in Miami. I actually make separate brown labels in in Nicaragua and make whatever's made in Miami still stays being made in Miami. Pete, before we go, I just want to say thank you for making the film. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Thank you. It's thanks, an, thanks it, for it, it. It's an important film, and I want all our film listeners to check it out. Uh, we've only actually done one other documentary on the film. Uh, it was the biggest documentary that streamed the highest numbers on Netflix last year. I just found out. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, we did it. We did a, a true crime film called "Abducted in Plain Sight." This crazy fucking crime story that. Us, oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the the mom and the dad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the 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 woman who directed it was my cinematographer on a lot of horror films I used to direct. So we had her on here for like four hours, <laughs> just drilling her about this thing. Uh, but you know what? It went on to, I mean. I didn't know it was the most streamed. That's awesome. It is the yeah. most streamed awesome. documentary on Netflix, and I want everyone listening uh, to the show to go out and rent Hand Roll. Frozen. Uh, it's yeah. actually I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna get it, and then I'm gonna ask the, our lounge to play it one night. Yeah, they have like a Thursday night movie night. Smokers Abbey in Cedar Park, Texas. Yeah, uh, I want to play it there. I think this should play in every lounge. Yeah. I think every lounge should have a Hand Roll night, but but more importantly, I think it needs to be seen by non. Cigar smokers, because I think the history. I think it's great for everybody yeah. to watch. Because, like I said, I've been in. I've, I thought I've been in the industry for a couple of years. You know, like what five years at least, six years. Man, I didn't know any of this stuff. It was an eye opener. Yeah, there's there's so much more that we could have talked about. I mean, uh, trying to fit the whole industry in ninety minutes is impossible. I've seen uh, a two and a half hour version of it, and it's. For me, as a cigar geek, like I could watch a ten-hour version of it; sure. yeah. it wouldn't matter. Um, we actually had to, just for political reasons, we had to remove a couple people from the film because of their association with certain companies. They didn't want to be put in the spotlight. Uh, it was kind of compli- a little bit, a little bit complicated. But uh, and but there's there's a lot of stories out there still. So uh, the, the ultimate goal was to tell the initial more of, the of Jonah Davis. <laughs> Pete, Pete, who were those people you had to remove from the film? No, no. Jonathan wasn't in the, Jonathan wasn't in the film. Jonathan wasn't in the film. Well, we, we, it's funny you mentioned that because not, not just uh, – but, I mean, there were – I just kind of got the impression that the, the story you guys were telling, it was so entrenched in old cigar families and yeah. generations, and that was kind of the, the ultimate – what you guys cut down to an hour and 22 minutes, that was a, a decision to where, you know what, like I said, there's another film. And it worked. There's it, another it, it worked. film to be told here about the next generation, the new wave yeah. 
of gringos going into Nicaragua and <laughs> and doing things and and social media. I think that's a that's its whole a whole yeah. other film. Maybe we'll make that. Film. Yeah, we we actually talked about it a little bit. Uh, like I called him during the movie. and I was like, hey, what do you think about this, 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 this? And uh, we we were talking about well, it's already a one thirty runtime, so you had to yeah. make some edit choice. But I think that was smart. I think that was smart yeah. to keep it with the old families and the tradition. I mean, it just it's. Plus, there's so much rich content. It, it, it's it's fine. It's fine, and I think that that's a story to be told later on. The more stories, the better. Everything can only help. Yeah. Uh, yeah there I was mean, a there was a whole segment. Um, I think I watched like a half hours of footage of uh, just on Opus X, and I, I could you know easily <laughs> put together with the, with the guy's help. I could easily put together another hour film on just Opus X. Sure. Yeah. Because there's so much history to that that line and the concept and where it came from and the people who are involved with uh you know around Carlito during the time he was playing around with how many people told him no it's not going to happen man that gets my uh, that gets my cigar nerd just going but nuts that's very smart because where your cigar nerd goes nuts yeah your normal person's not gra- yeah. grandma and gramps watching this it works well for them right they don't they don't care about all that nuts and bolts of Cool stuff. Uh, I, I I thought it was they, they they picked the right path. They made the right cuts. It's a very very effective documentary. Go s- check it out. Amazon, iTunes, hand rolled. Uh, you won't be disappointed. Uh, just thank you, Pete, so much. I'm going to cut you loose no, now won't. so we can talk about all the things we didn't necessarily like about the movie or the cigar. Once you're yeah. once you're yeah, far once, out once of earshot. Uh, unless you want to stick around for that, uh. <laughs> I don't mind hearing it. Actually, I mean, no, it, I'm no, it, it, it's, I do, so. it's all good. It's all good. Uh, just uh, really appreciate your time. I'm, I'm really happy. You're one of those guys that we've been wanting to get on the show for years now. And uh, with the release of the film, it was just kind of kismet. It was like, man, not only yeah, you had to make we smoke a cigar, we it's got a film to talk about. It just made a lot of sense. So thank you for making time for us. We really appreciate you, man. Very cool. I appreciate being on the show, and you guys are doing a good thing promoting the industry, so thank you for that. We're doing the best we can. Keep up the good and work, brother. I can't brother. wait to see more of the stuff that you're doing for Jonathan. Uh, I see. So all the clips that I'm seeing on social media, that's all you guys? We, it depends. If it's the barn smoker stuff, that's definitely us. If it's just the, yeah. the studio one-offs of you know holding cigars, uh, that's not us. No. Uh, we, we Whenever they travel, we, we pretty much... Uh, go on the road with them, and uh, we're, we're, we capture all their video. And then, uh, we, in prior years, we actually edited everything, and it was kind of a, a full service TNCC deal. Uh, they actually brought in a really talented uh, in-house editor. So now we're just there capturing as much content and audio as we can at these because the events are insane. I mean, yeah, you, you got yeah, barn smokers are. with you know nearly a thousand. Uh, brothers and sisters of the leaf, and we just we just kind of have this two awesome cameras going, gimbals going, sound boom going, and we, we just drop dead after eight hours. We just go eight <laughs> hours hardcore filming the most uh, insane cigar action <laughs> that uh, the world has ever seen, and then they they beautifully wrap it up into these cool little videos. Uh, but it, it's been a it's been a highlight for us to get to do that, and also you know it enables us to, like I said film some other stuff and uh, keep our 
uh, the rust off our filmmaking muscles uh, <laughs> to to do some other things. But uh, man, just really cool talking to you finally. And uh, thanks, man. thanks, thanks for everything. And uh, like I said, just keep it up, man. You're you're one of the the guys out there that I've always kind of got the impression is doing it right and for the right reasons. And you know, it unlike other industries, there's there's quite a few of you, but uh, you seem like a very earnest. Honest guy, and uh, I just I just really appreciate you hanging out with us for a little bit. Well, I appreciate you saying yeah. that, and I, I, again, I appreciate you guys promoting the industry. I mean, everything that uh, this industry right now we have kind of a fractured industry. We're trying to get it fixed, and uh, and we hope that the FDA or the government in general just kind of eases off of us, so they can understand we're not uh, part of that big tobacco group. So it is apples and oranges, and if we can convince just a few. Uh, people out in our audience that vote and even if they don't smoke cigars they just tune in for the movie or tune in for the beer but they get it and they're reasonable minded folks and you know if we can help in any way we can that's why we're here so uh let's all keep up the good fight and uh let's do this again sometime this was fun absolutely man thanks for the promotion all right Pete. appreciate it take care man take care guys we'll you see too. you soon bye-bye, bye-bye. take care bye-bye well, again, a big thanks to Pete Johnson for giving some uh, romper room numb nuts like us the time of day. Hell, he gave us two hours. Can't I, beat it. I told him 30 minutes. Two hours. 30 uh, minutes to two hours. Well, he's doing something incredibly special in the world of cigars. And hey, speaking of cigars, boys, I've got an amazing cigar I'd like to tell you good people at home about tonight. The Pappy Van Winkle's Family Reserve Barrel Fermented Cigar is a long filler premium cigar rolled in limited quantities at La Grande Fabrica Drew Estate in Esteli, Nicaragua. Uh, Deep barrel fermentation is the key process that makes this expression vastly different from anything else on the market. Hand-selected leaves from Kentucky are packed into small torquettes. That's bundles of tobacco to you noobs which are then loaded strategically into oak bourbon barrels. Water is then added while immense pressure is applied to the torquettes via railroad jacks. Crank it. The tobacco is removed two to three times per year, shaken out, then repacked. We've seen this in action at Mark Lyons Farm in Louisiana. The total process of fermentation takes 12 to 18 months, leaving a truly unique flavor profile and aroma. The Pappy Van Winkle's Family Reserve... Barrel Fermented is now available at brick-and-mortar Drew Diplomat retailers everywhere. Go get one. Go get one. Uh, boys, the La Vrite 2013 Churchill by Tatuaje. What are your thoughts? Uh, you mentioned a lot with Pete. The breadiness, the spice, the consistency. It just It's a, it's a phenomenal-looking cigar. It looks delicious. It is delicious. Final thoughts? Um, I like it. Very much. I mean, the initial, uh, just that strong uh, chocolate flavor, I enjoyed that. It it lessened in the middle, and then it came back towards more uh, dark chocolate towards the end here. Uh, it For myself, I mean, it's just uh, a very light pepper in the nose um, all the way throughout, and then just uh, a breadiness, a... Um, Crazy you got all that from one farm. One farm. Tut, your final thoughts. 
I love the brownness. I love the toast. Me. Like I said, this was a this was a cigar made for Elmore Blues because he's all about the toast. Because yeah, it was all over the palate. Uh, there was a light pepper on the retro hill that wasn't like just you know hard heavy. Ball I mean, buster. It, yeah, it was it was a nice pleasant little 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 flavor there. Little uh-huh. ple- little spice of piggy up there. Okay. Uh, which complemented great with that toast going across the palate. And it was that way through the entire cigar. It wasn't a crazy transition cigar. It was just that great flavor all the way through. Uh, I, I'm a fan of this. To be honest, you know, Tatawai is not exactly in my flavor profile. And I always try to be respectful for that. That just because it's not uh, in my flavor profile doesn't mean it's a bad cigar. Sure. It doesn't. And I, and I hate that when people go, this cigar sucks. No, it's just it's not in your wheelhouse. The dude has millions of fans He's got to be doing something right, and so you have to be respectful for that. This is in my flavor profile, and I I, I absolutely adore it. I think it's a nice. Ton adores it. Price point, Yak Boy. These come out every five years. Every five years, I'm he gonna... dumped a whole one because it wasn't ready. Uh, it was going to be released. That and was he's amazing. Like, Not happening. So I mean, he's very peculiar about when he's okay to put these. Either God, I want one of those hundred count boxes. And I haven't even smoked it yet. Uh, oh man, that's one tough farm. One. one farm. How many people are doing that? Comes out every few years. Every twice a decade, maybe. I'm gonna go fifteen. Mm-hmm. Twelve fifty. Know where he's sourcing his tobacco from? <laughs> Uh, when these were released uh, in 2016, they were 20. I found these on the secondary market. You know, obviously, several years later, uh, for 18. For a right. one farm limited uh, that you have to like get years later, 18's not bad at and all. And they were not easy to get. This yeah. was the cigar I wanted to have when we ha- talked to Pete. Uh, God knows, there's so many tatuajes we could have done. But this was the cigar that I wanted because of his love for wine, yeah. the connection there. I just thought this was the perfect cigar to, t- to talk about. Oh, my God. How great was that wine story, man? Yeah. And after all that planning, I couldn't smoke it tonight because I have a cold. <laughs> so I'm actually smoking one of his little tattoos. It's, I, I like the tattoos. I kind of get a little something out of that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think 18 is, from what you guys are describing and the way the, the process that went into it, Sure, I'm okay. fine. With, I, I'm actually fine with it. Okay. And you know, I'm it's a, a cheap, special. I'm cigar. a cheap bastard. You are, but it's a special cigar, and uh, there we go. Okay, let's. We usually have talked a lot more about our. Not beverages. only that, that was a almost a two hour interview we did, and I'm still smoking on this thing. Oh yeah, that's true too. That's nine bucks an hour. That's not bad. That's at not all, bad at man. all. Uh, we've usually talked a lot more about the beer by now. The Enter Night. I was maybe a little bit harsh when I said Enter Disappointment. Uh, for Pilsner, <laughs> it had some bite. It does. Yeah. And I, like I said, it it's striking me odd because, you know, they call it a Pilsner. It didn't but, taste anything like a Pilsner. But because of the higher IBUs, I'm like, this is, this is tending more towards like a Pale Ale. A Pale Ale. But, I mean, I, I can still detect and, and... But a part of me is like, well, maybe Metallica didn't want to put their name on a pale ale that's too wimpy. Pilsner's even wimpier. Pilsner's like the wimp of the beer world. 
No, it's not. The blonde is the wimp of the beer world. No, actually, the blonde's got a little bit more bite than the pills. That's true. What is the wimp of the beer world? Yeah, it's kind of the pills. The pills. I'm just gonna go, you know, light lager. They should have called. Yeah. It, they should have called it the nothing else matters pilsner. <laughs> Weak sauce what? like they're fucking no, I, I No, I actually, I'm uh, I'm probably... I like, I'm, I'm going to be the first much one to say I like, drink it again. As much as I like Unibrew, I'm probably going to go back to it because You can't. We only have one left for pictures later. Ah, oh, shit. We still yeah, have, we have a million other fucking beers in there. I mean, I'm... We got you covered. Yeah, but I mean, I like... It's it's winter. I, I'm kind of I've got a I've got a distinctive taste that I want in my mouth, and and that's Metallica. Well, no, a I'm just saying that the, the metallic pilsner is not offensive. Yeah, but I mean, it like should the, be. It's Metallica. Like, no, it's, the, it's the, like the, the black sweet album. rogue goblin, the sweet stone goblin, and you can't come. You know, why don't I just call it Kill 'Em All? Because it's a pilsner that doesn't kill anything, especially <laughs> your taste buds. I like that nothing else matters. Now, if they had a damage Se- incorporated porter, we do that. <laughs> Seeking inebriate? Yeah. The four hopsmen? <laughs> there we go. I'm liking it. No, ride the logger. Ah. Ride the logger. That one. That one. Trapped that- under hops? Master of Pilsner. Master of Pilsners. I'm getting depressed. We're talking about all these good old Metallica songs. No, Lars is sitting there copywriting every freaking name. We just got this. He's not listening. I've got this. Got this. Well, I mean, you know, maybe an IPA, Hoptorium. Actually, actually, oh, hell yeah, Hoptorium, man. Hoptorium. Let me be. By the way, Gene Simmons just copyrighted all He actually copyrighted those for some reason. He's so good. He's so quick. Uh, he actually copied Okay, well, you, you guys are maybe a little more favorable on it. I, I'm not going to drink that again. Uh, the second beer, the Blanche de Chambly uh, by Unibrew is so flat. Even with a head cold, I'm getting flavors out of this it, thing. Yeah. How it's, do they do it? It's like, sweet. Mad it's sweet without being sweet. It's floral without... Overblowing it, it's herbal. There's coriander. There's, I mean the, you know, like they said, but it, unfiltered, but it, right there. That it, it's like a, a lighter, gentler Donde Do, where Donde Do was so heavy with the herbs and the and the floral component. Yeah, this has floral and herbs, but it's so much lighter and crisper. Correct. In uh, late March, early April. I'll enjoy this. It's a blonde, correct? I want it a little bit. I want to. Uh, it yes. It, well, um, they categorize it as a blonde. Uh, no, it, it's uh, a wit beer. Oh, it is a wit. Yeah, wit. Yes. Yeah. At least pronounced wheat. Most of their stuff is. Yeah. Or it's in that kind of kind of profile. Okay. Uh, we don't have any dark beers in our fridge, do we? I don't um, think so. Man, I gotta get you guys on dark beers. I love dark beers. Nah, you got some golden drocks. That's that's nothing that's, to go dark about. That's it. nothing dark about it, dude. I gotta get Kate on dark beers. He, he would like, like. He would like a good porter. I want a brown ale. Can we try a brown ale? Like like Tut with his precious brown ales. I've never had a porter I liked, but I'm still young. 
kill me. I actually had a, the Real Ale coffee porter. <laughs> That's not bad. It, it's I was, I was You're kind a Real Ale fan. I was, I was actually impressed with this. Okay. Uh, well, I definitely think uh, the Unibrew Big Surprise worked out best uh, for me tonight, flavor-wise. Uh, but I'm glad you guys got something out of the Enternight. It worked with Pete and his music background. So, <laughs> um, You guys want to talk a little bit about the movie? No, I'm done. Obviously touched on a little bit, a lot of it with Pete, but I, I kind of wanted to just take a minute and acknowledge uh, the writers and directors, uh, Steve... Here we go again. I'm going to fuck this up. Garabine. G-H-E-R-E-B-E-A-N. We have the G silent. Harabine. Harabine. And Jesse Marut. Uh, I do want to acknowledge them and what they did. And I, and I just Good job, want, guys. I just kind of want to take a minute to talk about some... If there were moments in the film that kind of stuck out to you. Because uh, there were for me. I mentioned when we talked to Pete that... That moment where Elder Patron, Elder Padron, uh, went on that mission after you know they left Cuba. Yeah, he established one of the first farms in Nicaragua. Went back to Cuba on a humanitarian humanitarian mission to help rescue some political prisoners. Castro asks him, "I hear you're making." Some cigars in Nicaragua, and he hands him one. Yeah, I was like, I, I, who you make cigars in Nicaragua that are supposed to be better than Cuba? Let me try one. He hands him a cigar. They take a picture of that, and they showed us the picture in the documentary, yeah. and the newspapers went nuts with it. All of a sudden, Padron is labeled a communist, a Castro sympathizer. They burn down his factory in Nicaragua. They firebomb his Miami offices. So you're that saying was a it, crazy fucking story. So you're saying it was fake news. It was fake news. It was it was maybe the original fake news. No, I that was that was a crazy story. I had no idea. Can I go on a news rant? Sure. Because it's a little bit off it's not documentary related, but it's kind of related. What do we tell Pete about our podcast? No rules? There's no rules, baby. Okay, so uh, there was a student or a substitute teacher who got fired because she beat the fucking crap out of a special needs student. Uh And they got the footage of it. She's wailing this kid, punching full in the face, throws it out of the desk, the kid out of the desk, throws it, throws the kid out of the desk, stomps on the kid's head. Well, first you did special needs in quotes, and then you called him it. So I see where he's heading with this. So uh, anyway, she like beats the crap out of this kid and gets fired, deservedly so. Right. You, you can't do that. I'm sorry. But the news yeah. when I first when I first saw it, the clip showed the entire thing to where the teacher walks up, tries to you know tells the kid get off your cell phone, and then all right, the kid's not doing it. Give me your cell phone. The kid throws the first punch, hits the pe- teacher in the face, and then the the teacher just goes nuts. Female and, or male teacher? Female teacher. Okay. okay. And then she goes nuts and beats the shit out of this kid, yeah. which you can't do, and she deservedly got fired. That was the only time I saw that clip. The other times I saw that that clip, it was just the teacher going to town on this clip. They never show the kid throwing a punch. They just show this teacher just, you know... Off kilter, doing this thing. They never throw the. Can I get up and sharpen my pencil? 
she's like she goes crazy. And then they they start they start teaching like they start uh, showing this kid as like a slow special needs kid. The kid is special needs, but it's epilepsy. It's not it's not slow development. It's not understanding. a medical condition. Right, it's a medical condition, but it's a special needs. And I'm just like, why this this story is horrible enough. It's justifiable firing. You can't have a substitute teacher just throwing punches at kids. They're right for th- for firing her, but why do you have to doctor this story to where you're not showing the entire thing? And that that's what made me think about the Padron because thing. Because you don't... That you're not showing the entire context of the deal. You just saw one, one little photo, and then next thing you know, this guy's getting fucking bombed. Yeah. That's a, that's I'm sorry. There is there is an inherent responsibility as a news organization. If you want me to respect you as the fourth state, the fourth branch of Congress, then live up to your inherent responsibility. I am tired of all this faction bullshit. There's a really interesting story in the news now. Uh, there, well, no, there's a, a university that. Is, can you turn the music down just a little bit? Uh, there's a university where uh, Jeff Sessions. Uh, who was Trump's the Alabama guy, Attorney General? Yeah, uh, resigned or fired, however you want to put it. Was given a speech at a university last week, and it had protesters protesting him giving the speech at the university. And the university journalism department covered it. They tweeted, you know, pictures protesters outside the the. Jeff Sessions' speech. Um, apparently, they, you know, they took pictures of the protests, and then they approached protesters uh, using the student directory to ask them for comments and quotes on why they were protesting. The student newspaper then, a few days later, came out and published an apology. Apparently, several of the students were offended, and. Uh, taken aback by the student newspaper filming them protesting and then asking them for comment. How? This is one of the number one. I, I'm sorry, I don't have the school. This is one of the number one journalism schools in the country. And the editor in chief of the paper, then editor in chief of the paper, issued a full apology. Columbia. We made some mistakes. We'll do better. And every journalism every journalist in the world came on the attack you're apologizing for doing your jobs you're apologizing you're, yeah, for you're, doing journalism if someone is protesting and the kids agreed to get to do it well no, no i mean I, I, it, okay if you walk up to someone at a protest which is happening out in the public usually first of all you don't even have to ask their fucking names you can just do it they're in the public like cody said but how dare if you, you walk up to someone and say, and expose us. excuse me, would you be interested in doing an interview? Can I ask you why you're out here? No. Okay. Nick, on to the next one. On to the next one. But you can't sit there and say, I can't believe you used that footage of me protesting when I'm out here in the public square protesting. You, you, Come on. You have no... Con- have if, you are, if you are out in the open, engaged in a public protest, someone takes a picture, you have no right to refuse Common because... Sense. Isn't so common. People these days, are boys. going to take a picture. I'm just of saying it. that if you're if you're going to be protesting and you don't have the balls enough to put your face to it, then don't protest. You're not really protesting you anyway. You can't have a secret protest. No, no, you cannot. 
I'm, I'm sorry. You can have a secret well, ballot. You can. Vote. You can create, sign your name to it. Man. You can you have, create a fake profile on Instagram and make well, no, 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 anonymous comments. No, no, but if you go out in public, you should have put a mask on if you don't want people to know you were I'm out just, there protesting. I'm just saying, I've done a in lot in public. I've made a lot of stupid decisions. I've made a lot of stupid choices. God, you know, yes. God. I mean, this podcast is one, but at least I put my name on it. Uh, my concho. <laughs> and I'm your host, Ron Mexico. Uh, okay. Uh, I think the point being, nothing's changed. Shit gets skewed. Innocent people get drug under the uh, under the truck. The poor fucking Padron gets his freaking house and family Wait. bombed. That was a crazy story. Um, another story, which I mentioned with Pete, that stuck out to me, the speech by Panchita, the older Nicaraguan woman who's chief of quality control at Hoya. She talked about when Reagan imposed the embargo on all Nicaraguan products because they felt the dictator was coming in with the agenda they didn't agree with. Uh, so no more Nicaraguan cigars into the U.S. She's like, we kept growing tobacco. We downsized to 10 rollers at the tables, but we kept rolling the best cigars. We just couldn't let this great company that we had helped build vanish. And this isn't the owner. This isn't the management. This is a floor worker. I just thought that was a great moment. That the the hand rolled boys captured, and I I was aware of the embar the Nicaraguan embargo. I didn't realize it lasted until 1990. I didn't either. I mean, shit. When did JD get there? Just a couple years later. Yeah, I think I think that her story is very poignant because I have some friends that work for some of the automakers, and remember when the automakers were getting bailouts from the government yeah. because they're you know going under. Uh, the year that they were going at, or it was like the year after that they were going going under, the UAW they were striking while they were while these car makers were going bankrupt. And I mean, and, and there's it, it's very it's a complicated issue, and I don't want to boil it down to being to something simple. But I remember one of my friends talking about one of the sticking points that the UAW had is they wanted the first day of deer season as a vacation and yeah and here I am listening to this lady saying you know we were helping keeping this company afloat during the dictatorship because they love the company that much and it meant that much to them and I'm just like well wow that is just such a weird dichotomy man sure they don't realize and they just the assumption is you know especially for the 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 auto workers, they assume these companies are immortal. Yeah. And they're not. There is no company that exists today. There's and a, and we, we, we love, we love the, the saying because we applied it to the banks, too big to fail. Yeah. But there is no company that is too big to fail. I don't think so. Google, I, Apple. I, I, companies. I got a very realistic uh, vibe from Panchita where she's like, oh, we're well aware it could fail. It is failing due to the embargo but we're going to do everything we can but in this instance to survive to survive and, and to put our asses on the line with hours and and labor to 
continue something that we have pride in that we don't have ownership in. There was right. a there's something very special about that. There was a protest in Nicaragua what a year ago, two mm-hmm. years ago, and I was watching. Uh, you know, if you're friends with Skip on Facebook. Skip you know, Martin of Craft. He was posting photos of it from his rooftop, and he made the comment that you know no worker of his missed work. All of his employees were accounted for. They showed up to work on time. Meanwhile, there's riots going on there, and there, there's a couple of different narratives that you can take on that. You know, one narrative is that well, you know, the workers are so desperate they need that job they can't do it. No, the other narrative is is that. They're treated right. I mean, they 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 know the value of that job, and the the job treats them right. The job treats them as family. The job treats them yeah. as you know human beings, and that's why they're there on time. And there's 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 that fine line. Like like it's it's easy to go against you know unions and things like that, but if left unchecked, you can't have corporates going like the old Carnegie corporate towns to where you're paid in corporate money, you're paid in corp you're living in corporate housing. By the way, Apple's putting up a whole lot of money for, you know, housing. I mean there there's a there's a there's a min and max to both sides. We gotta find some little equilibrium. I agree. Man, I'm preaching. It's very preaching though. Yes. Here's something maybe you'll agree with me on maybe you won't. If you don't, we're gonna get into it. I'm always the first one to say here on the show, watching all the films that we watch, that I'm generally not a fan of drone footage in films. It's too easy and accessible as a filmmaking tool these days, and I can always spot it a mile away as opposed to traditional helicopter aerial shots, which I love. But my God, does it work in this movie. I don't care. If it helps you tell the story, then it use works it. And so, it works very well. Oh, my God. Just the stuff of the Davidoff compound and the Fuente compound... I'm just like it gives you a sense of scale that I mean Damn. you heard you heard him they were doing this on a very tight budget but you have to use it and they did it very they, masterfully they timed it well with the, the description of these epicenters that these these families have created they're little villages among the village yeah but at random times when people were talking just the shots over the tobacco fields and mainly just the the the, the beautiful the, the the cleanliness and it, the in the in the the attention to artistic architecture of the the Fuente farms and they're not just barns they're beautiful old school barns and it's like well and I, I will agree I with you in this footage. I'll agree with you in this because it it in the instance that they used it 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 was providing a context for you to like you know they say as they said you know the you know you know, Placencia or or Padrone or any of those, they they say here's our factory, and you get that little flyover where they talk about it. And you're like, so you know the phys- you you can you can then, you know, put an image to that name for that physical structure. And it was really cool because there was a, cu- a couple of farmers who talk about you know we developed this, you know we came to a country that had no tobacco. History, no tobacco farms, and we developed it, and we grew it, and then all of a sudden you just see these beautiful farms and these beautiful barns, and these, and not only that, but they they make the the headquarters, you know, very Cuban esque from where they came from, and it's just it's gorgeous. Was I the only one that was kind of taken aback by how small they were? We're not talking about like when I when I pictured like these big tobacco fields, I'm picturing like. 
you know, you Texas panhandle wheat fields that just stretch right. on forever. Yeah, no, I mean, they're, and they're actually not. No, they're, I mean, and, and they're segmented. You know, you could see where, like, this was this and this was, I mean, they were very, uh, segmented. It, it was a very effective tool to show us what they were talking about, and it was done really well. Right. Well, you know, like I said, it, it's, it, like I said, it gives a context because, you, th- like you said, you're just expecting just to the horizon fields of tobacco. These are these big... There's a bright green no. gaze on the meadow. They're literally, you know... I'm out of here. They're, they're, they're small field, <laughs> and they are segmented, they're, but they're... It's it's not just this that we we cleared everything else out to plant tobacco. I'm sorry. Now I'm just picturing. Carnito. There was a forest over oh, here. Oh, a beautiful morning. Well, there was some really good stuff in there too about how Castro wiped out so many of the tobacco fields to grow sugarcane, and it was not prepared for sugarcane. They didn't treat the crops properly, and, then, and it was a big bust, and they ruined all these great tobacco fields to try to introduce sugarcane. And, and that w- that is where you saw the mechanization. It uh, yeah. there's a, a show on it's either I think it's sci-fi or no not sci-fi but Science Channel where they do like this uh, history of the abandoned and this, they take satellite footage and then you try to guess like what's happening. And there's like this swath across Russia that's kind of like this like weird desolate type thing. But basically Stalin said I want to grow wheat in this area that's just never really prepared for wheat. And so they spent millions and millions of dollars to cultivate wheat in this area. It's like this big, long trench. And now it's just wasteland because they didn't know what they were doing. That kind of reminded me of what, you know, Castro was doing. We're going to grow a sugar cane here. Well, it's not really, you know. We don't really do that here. Huh? We don't do that here. Oh, you go to jail. Uh, I thought it was also really fascinating to hear the key industry players talk about the monumental importance of Cigar Fish and Audio Magazine. Uh, it played a vital role in the resurgence of the cigar industry in the 90s. I knew it did to a certain extent, but not what I got from this movie. And I really liked what the Ashton president said, uh, what it did for brand loyalists. Before the magazine launch, guys would go into a brick-and-mortar tobacco store, buy their same cigar. cigars they buy every week, and all that. All of a sudden, Cigar Aficionado starts reviewing cigars and introducing other cigars and they're buying new stuff. I want to try that. I want to try that. That was not happening before Cigar Aficionado hit the shelves. to me is really weird. And, and of course, you know, I, I can't say anything because I did really, you know, start smoking in the 90s. But, I mean, you walk into a humidor, any decent humidor, how could you just walk in and look at the one box knowing that there's Twenty Dude, others to the I left. I see it. I see it every day on social media. Guys, like my dad is a this smoker. He goes in, he buys this cigar. What can I do to? What cigar well, will get him to branch out from? And, the, the, well, it's and then, still, it's I can still underst- I can understand well, that. I, mean, I can un- I can understand that because I I always call it within my own thing as you know. Uh, Dude, you own a pub, the Bud Light drinkers. The oh Michelob yeah, ultra drinkers. There's a special place. In he- there's a special place in hell for people who you walk into Michelob a draft ultra. house, ask you about ten different drafts, and then order a bottle of Bud Light. I'm actually, I'm actually fine <laughs> actually, with that. That place is called hell. If if you're one of those people, 
fuck you. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but hey. don't you ever walk in, ask a dude. This eight is therapy. Get it out. Ah. <laughs> uh, Tell me about this. Tell me about this. Uh, so what are flights? I, I can, want a flight I, of... I can try all these. Oh, man. Yeah, that, give me a Michelob that Ultra. That sounds light. great. I'll have a Bud Light. But that should make sense to you. But I'm a, a, at the same time, I don't mind the guy who just walks up and says, I want a Bud Light. Yes, okay. Because I, it's the same way with the cigars. But I as a pub owner, the guy wastes none of your time. It, well, yeah. I mean, I'm just well, like you know, going into the humidor, and the guy was like, makes a beeline. I want the punch. That's it. Well, I, and the, I, I'm, I'm fine but with the, that. The number one thing that I will say this they're and this, not saying and this, that that's this, wrong. They're saying that the magazine opened them up to no, where those guys, but what those I'm, guys would actually try new stuff. That's what, a big deal. The number one thing is about those guys that just go in and buy what they buy is because they tried it, they liked it. They don't want to try something else because a cigar isn't something you can return once you light it. Correct. So they don't want buyer's remorse. I'll, I'll say I I this gave me a, a deeper appreciation for cigar aficionados. It did me too. Role in the history. It did me too. Uh, there's there's a lot of crap that's given to them and probably justifiably so. Uh, but I didn't realize. Just how big of an impact it was. I also didn't realize uh, Marvin Shankman, the editor's previous history in wine magazines and what he brought into the that approach he took to cigar. I, di- I didn't know his backstory there, but yeah, I, I gained a, a big kind of appreciation for their impact in the '90s. Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I talked about this a little bit with Pete. The moment towards the end of the film, you actually brought this up, Tut, where Pepin Garcia talks about his factory buying the Devaney machines for his factories, and when he realized the automated process would eliminate up to 60 workers, or extended family as he called them, he got rid of the machines immediately. There's an actual heart beating in this industry at the higher-ups, unlike anything we're kind of seeing nowadays where everyone is going automated where everyone is going anything to save a buck uh these guys, it, these guys truly do look at their workers as valuable extended members of their family and name me another industry that does it to that extent well and more so is that you know they live where they work now, you Correct. Know, we, we and a lot of these factories we saw in the documentary, their kids come to work with them, and they have an on-site daycare, and then they they that Hell, was, some of these some of these companies built the high school that got to be too much. We're like, all right, great, the kids have great daycare, but when they get to a certain age, they have no school to go to. The near schools, okay, guess what? J. C. Newman and Fuente start building elementary schools. There's guess a, uh, what. Eventually, the kids are too old for elementary school. Did y'all read, I guess we have to build a high school. Did y'all read any of the reviews on Amazon? No, I never do. The top uh, con review. They always like the top positive review, the top negative review. The top negative review was like, uh, it's a good documentary, but very aggrandizing. I kind of, and it was like a one star. And I was like, I kind of, it was good about the history, but I kind of left it, left it alone when a, uh, they started talking about pumping tens of millions into schools. I mean, give me a break. And I'm just like, no, 
I don't know what I don't know. Signed by Satan. I don't know. It wasn't. I I don't know whether you know that ten million number. I I didn't hear that in the in the documentary, so I'm not sure where they got that into it. But it's actually there. I mean, these companies are pumping in industry. Oh, there was you talked to JD. JD talks about like there was like one restaurant when he got there in Esteli, and now there's like fifteen. And they, I mean, there's just there was a moment in the documentary. It was even running water where Fuente went to JC Newman. It was like we. These kids are getting older. We need to build a high school. And he's like, we don't have money to do that. And he's like, well, we'll figure it out. And they took out a loan. And three Those are two competing brands that did that. Well, they two competing brands that work together. Right. Which, there's so many and unique, I'm sorry, interesting it, aspects of this industry. And that, even, if you well, want, even if you want to boil it down to as cold as an employer saying, we need to educate our workforce... But at more, least they fucking did that. And but they, more so they put than that, I mean, into the schools. You're, like, you're looking Chuck at Chuck D used to bitch about Nike, like in the '80s, was talking about Nike. It was like, look, all the black kids are here in the neighborhood buying your product. Put some money in our schools. And yet, the cigar industry—that's exactly what they've been doing for sixty years. Yeah, but the the, the number one difference is Good point, huh? in those places where they're at. There isn't necessarily a functioning government. No, no. So. We, not that we have one here, but you know when they say like you know they don't have any They're schools. Doing stuff. They don't. They don't have any They're schools. Stuff. They're. Uh, you think that you know a Department of Education is going to come in and and make a school, fix a school? No, they didn't have it. They're the functioning thing that's you know one of the number one employers, and not just from that. That they are one of the number one employers. How you know how many people do they employ, and from that, what do those em- employees contribute to that local I just think economy? That, I just think that it's because you, you it's know a you totally talk about a restaurant. Life. You wouldn't have a restaurant if those people weren't going out to eat, right? Correct. And I just think that it's a totally different. There, I hate saying that you know. Oh, look at the gringos and the Americans that totally take take for granted the things that we have and the liberties and the freedoms and the and just the excess that we have because i mean it's a tire cliche but there's truth to it you know we bitch about mark you know our our school boards have debates about mark twain book because it has the n-word there they don't have a school board and they don't even have the book that has the n-word in it it's totally different lifestyle well i've got some breaking news um the Tuesday Night Cigar Club is going to be sending Nicaraguan school children 200 copies of Mark Twain next week. We've got them boxed up, and they're going to know the N-word, damn it. And I'm, I, I'm just... We do what we can. I chose this cause. and uh, You're lying. Yes, you are. Of course I am. Because that would make my heart happy. If you want to send them some books, we'll send some books. Maybe we can do it with... Books that don't have the N word. To kill Bonkingbird. When we send them that, that's a good one. It's still pretty bad. Think, do they say the N word in that? They do. Ah, damn it. <laughs> that negative review just kind of caught me a little bit, and I was just like, man, uh, come on, man. Of course, there but was I, a, I, I understand uh, of course it. You know, I'm a cynical bastard too. Yeah, so. well, we all are, but you know what? We, I think, we have a kind of a. Over the last few years, we've kind of gotten to know the industry and know that what's bullshit and what's not. Yeah, and, and I, I this 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 was a fun journey for me because with my editing background and 
I just I I understand political docs and I understand documentaries to begin with. They all have a story. They all have a side. They all have a message that they want to want to portray. But I actually thought that this was a pretty decent job on just you know they they glorified the industry a bit, but they didn't go to just serious success with it. No, it didn't. wasn't like a Michael Moore who was just like no, editing speech, yeah, editing no, speech no, after. No, no they film. didn't, and I think because of our kind of how entrenched we are in the industry our sensors would have gone off if it was screwy or kind of verbose and too much nothing really rang false with me on this thing yeah i uh it, it passed my 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 truth sensors and and there's a lot of good shit that the industry's done for countries that they didn't even mention true they never got to Drew Estate. They never got to the houses that Drew Estate built. But you know what? This was about old families and tradition. The big names, the old names, and I get, I, you know, I get that. The clip and hand rolled that resonated with me the most, and it caught me by surprise, was the quick interview with Berta Bravo, the Guyabera lady. I probably said that wrong. The Guyabera lady. Those shirts. She makes those shirts that all the guys wear in the tobacco fields. They hold cigars in them, like <laughs> she's the Gayabara lady. She makes Gayabara shirts. Gayabara shirts. Thank God. You said it right. Thank God, Pete's not around for this. Uh, where she was talking about her greatest memories in life, being surrounded by her cigar industry friends, and she said, and I quote, "They don't just take you in; you become part of the family." And I've kind of, let's see if you guys agree with me, found that to be true. There's nothing quite like it. Whenever I was around filmmaking people, there was always a tension, a, a distrust, a kind of a sense of, I want you to fail if it helps me succeed. Yeah. Uh, Todd, I imagine it's much like that on the music scene. Oh, yeah. I used to be that guy. And ever since we've done this, not only have we been really welcomed by a lot of people in the industry but you know over the last two years traveling with Drew Estate when we show up at these random events around the country and we see our Drew Estate guys I mean they kind of have we've kind of become part of the their family I mean they treat us so well and they treat us um, once kind of got to know our quirks and how we do? Uh, I mean, it, there, it's it's. I don't want to say refreshing because that's kind of I think shortchanging it, but it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing industry full of amazing people that actually treat people well, and better than well. They they give you the benefit of the doubt without really knowing everything about you. They give they give that time. We'll get to know each other over time, but I'm going to immediately assume the best of you, which I don't know of many other industries that do that. Well, you know, and it was descri- it was said in the film, and and you know, Pete mentioned it in the film himself. You know, you 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 put in your dues, and and he has put in his fucking dues. Well. I think in a lot of instances, especially you know, especially in the music world or or other ones, they they people think that there is 
too, or too many people think that there's a shortcut. And yeah, we, we like to talk about the, the overnight hit in music, and but too many people, because there's others, they put in their dues. They, they've, they've played numerous venues or put in their time, you know, making their music and, and trying to make it better. I think there's a lack of jealousy. I think jealousy is the big, the big demon in the room with a lot of these creative worlds. You know, how? Did, why is this guy successful? Why is this guy getting the, the this? And I, I don't see that a lot in the cigar world. I don't see. I see a lot of cigar makers sharing good reviews of other people's cigars. Which is amazing because there are, hopefully this doesn't offend too many people, there are some huge egos in the cigar industry. Of course there are. Which makes it kind of, which makes it kind of contrary that they would be doing this. That they would be doing that. They, they, they would. It's kind of weird talking about how humble somebody is with like these huge egos, but it's true. They share each other's success because I think they realize because of the fight they're up against, against the FDA, against the big tobacco entities, we're all in this together. And the, mo- the more successful any of us are, it only adds to our strength, our collective strength. Uh, they get that. They're smart enough to get that. There's a lot of smart people in the cigar world. Yes. And I think they get that. And I don't know, that that little moment there with Berta Bravo. Unlike our last film where we mentioned uh, the star Berta Boobs. Remember her? <laughs> <laughs> we actually classed it up tonight. Oh, Berta we Bravo. did. And this was our first show without mentioning boobs. Well, you just not mentioned anymore. Them. Yeah. You did it twice. I did it. I totally did it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know what? Handrolled does a really good job of showcasing an industry that we love. Uh, nitpick it all you want. They they chose the narrative path. They stuck with it. I think it works. Um, I'm not even going to... I, I did have some nitpicks on the editing, going FDA early, then kind of forgetting about it, then going FDA late. Tut says that's foreshadowing. You said it's foreshadowing. It worked for you guys. As a whole, you know what? I'm well, not, I mean, not going to nitpick this thing. It, wor- it worked for me as a whole, so I'm going to just... I was about to say, you have to understand the audience. Uh, if you're going for cigar insiders and industry people... Then you can do you can edit a certain way, but if you're going for people that might be outside the culture, outside the industry, then first of all you have to introduce the threat, but introduce why it's a threat. You can't say that this is a threat and say that something needs to be protected if you don't give people a reason to care about what needs to be protected. So introduce. I, I, I thought that they did. It, they handled it very delicately. You introduced a threat. You showed why it needed to be protected. Then you reca- Then you got a, into a little bit more of the weeds on the stuff. And you're talking about an hour and a half. You don't get a lot of time to it. No, you don't. So you know you have to kind of make 
you, you kind of have to pick and choose. I mean, if you're doing a, just a, a total propaganda piece to where you're just speaking to industry indis- insiders, then, yeah, that, that changes your approach on how you take editing. That makes sense. I thought that they did a really good job on it, to be honest. I thought it could have used a little more Tuesday Night Cigar Club. It could have. It really, it really could have. Have me lighting my cigar with a cedar splint. My legs crossed seductively. <laughs> uh, I could have done some. By things. the way, my man Daniel Marshall. Oh, oh come on, Daniel! I saw him and my face lit up. I was like, oh. I was like, he's gonna talk about the campfire. He's gonna talk about the campfire. It all goes back to the campfire. I was like, oh, <laughs> love it. Uh, yeah, it was really fun seeing a lot of familiar faces. It's like, hey. There's Daniel. We've talked to him. There's the Martinez family. We've talked to him. I was like, I talked to him. I talked to him. And, and, you know, that's what I actually loved about it. I mean, you know, as you start out with the older, the, you know, the the real far back history, like, you know, but as it started coming forward in time, you know, you start seeing these faces, you're like, I know that guy. I've seen him. I do think. Hey, I talked to that one. There is. And you're just, and, but once again, it wasn't like you were looking at someone says like, I, I I said hello to that guy one time and it, no I, I actually talked to him he, we conversed yeah. no the only guy I've actually said hi to and it was like that was Pete Johnson and we had him <laughs> on the show now we're old friends and no you said hi to Daniel Marshall no I'm saying the only guy in the documentary was like oh I've said hi to him but I never really talked to him was, oh, P- was yeah, Pete yeah. and we saw that tonight well you know that was the thing like everybody every single person they brought on in this film knowing what I know now I would think and I, and I thought you know, like you know what I could sit down to any of them and have a conversation light up a cigar and just start talking about something and the cool thing about the industry is that they would actually light up a cigar and talk to you about it too yes and that's I agree now the interesting thing about it is is that I mean, you can't have like a three-hour epic on this thing. I understand the editing choices that they made, but there are so many more stories to actually tell. There when are. When you talk about, you know, the boom of the 90s, what 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 sponsor what 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 came of that? You need to talk about the disruptors like Drew Estate. You need to talk about the craft and the boutiques, the boutique startups. You know, the I, I think that there's a lot of value into going into the Sockas, the Robert Holtz, the Skip Martins. Uh, I think that there's a there's a lot of gravitas to be played there. Well, I think that's uh, like I said, a, a tale for a different day. And I and I think you know, hey man, we've been talking to JD about that documentary for years, ongoing. And the its worth and its merit, uh, I think that can be an ex- expanded uh, and a broader scope from JD to cigar personalities as a whole, and what Facebook and Instagram and social media has done to explode the engagement of brand owners like Pete, like JD, like Saka, like Robert Holt, like that in and of itself is an effective tool to get a message out to non-cigar people just to open their eyes to a world of fandom and a, uh, you know, once again, that tonight's t- magic word, subculture, that you never knew existed. 
like fish fans following fish, the band Fish <laughs> around the country, or you know, Die Hard. You know, there's tons of documentaries about weird hobbies and like this. Wow, I didn't know that existed. Guys dressed up in bear suits humping each other in the woods. So that's the, interesting. So the next documentary is going to be a documentary on LARPing. LARPing? LARPing. What's that? Live action role playing. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you never knew it existed. It needs to be told. I had to tell you earlier tonight that your sweater was on backwards. What are you going to dress up as without my help and live action anything? Wizard. Magic missile. Thank you, everybody. Oh, wait. Before we go. <laughs> before we go. We're working on him. Nights I've got to take bad, one night, more minute once coming. again to tell you good people at home about a new cigar that I'm a big fan of. Huh? You are, too. I saw you smoke one. You loved it. The Pappy Van Winkle's Family Reserve Barrel Fermented Cigar is a long filler premium cigar rolled in limited quantities at La Gran Fabrica Drew State in Esteli, Nicaragua. Deep barrel fermentation is the key process that makes this expression vastly different from anything on the market. Hand-selected leaves from Kentucky, we've seen them hand-select those leaves, are packed into small torquettes. Bundles of tobacco for you. Bundles. Morons. Which are then loaded strategically into... He was talking about us, not you, our loyal, oh, no, famous... No, no not you, our loyal fan base. I'm talking about these two. Uh, which are then loaded strategically into oak bourbon barrels. Water's then added. Well, immense... God, the immensity of this pressure. This this pressure must so be immense. Enormous. Every vein in that leaf must be on fire. The immensity must be so immense. Uh, I'm sorry, they cranked the crap out of that thing. Is applied to the Torquettes via railroad jacks, not car jacks, not truck jacks, railroad fucking jacks. The tobacco is removed two to three times per year by these dudes that we saw in Louisiana that really take that shit seriously. They take it out. They work it. They wash it with water. Hey, tobacco is begging what we've learned to be manhandled. It loves to be manhandled. Tough style. I didn't hear, I didn't hear no. The total <laughs> process takes 12 to 18 months, leaving a truly unique flavor profile. Tough style. And aroma. The actual style. <laughs> the Pappy Van Winkle's Family Reserve Barrel Fermented is now available at brick-and-mortar Drew Diplomat retailers everywhere. Before you had to go to the Pappy Van Winkle website and buy these things from the Pappy Van Winkle sisters, who we met at uh, Louisiana Barn Smoker, great gals. Yes, they are. But now you can actually go to your local shop and buy these, but there is one size that you still have to go to the Pappy site. They've Tell ma- me. They've, Tell me what the size they've is. They've made a pig. Pappy uh-huh. <laughs> Van Winkle... Barrel fermented family reserve pig, and you still have to go to the website to get that. But while you're on that website, get this: they got some really cool Pappy T-shirts, hats. There's like two hats I really want. I love that Pappy hat, man. I'm a hat guy now. I've been wearing them a lot lately, so I'm gonna get two hats, coffee mugs. They they got all sorts. (laughs) They got all sorts of nonsense on there that you don't need, but you kind of want. Uh, so my Christmas shopping is all going to be done on pappyco.com. Yours should be too. Or just go down to your local cigar shop, buy one. 
It is unlike anything you will smoke because it's filled with tobacco unlike any tobacco you've ever had. Only Mark Ryan's Farm makes Perique tobacco, and it is unique as hell, and you will love it. And I hope you love tonight's episode. And by the way, if you're still listening, God you bless go. you. Give us some links. If to you're that. going to uh, do some Christmas shopping and some shopping of your own, go to the TuesdayNightCigarClub.com website. Click on the Amazon uh, banner. Do your shopping from there. Uh, we get a little percentage, and it helps us to you know keep Buy these wonderful lives on. Buy a lot of shit. Yeah. Buy a lot of shit. Uh, by the way, if you want to buy some cigars, go to the Tuesday Night Cigar Club. Click on the Famous Smoke Shop da- banner. If you buy $100 or more, it you don't even have to type it in now. It just absolute, it just automatically you go to website, applies, it applies it. that shit. Just go ahead, buy yourself some cigar. What's, what are you going to say? I'm going to roll here. I do have to interject. The U.S. House of Representatives passed a anti-tobacco bill today, and part of that bill was a rider banning all online sales of vaping, flavored, and premium cigars. They lumped our beloved premium cigars in with that shit. We are threatened with not being able to buy premium cigars online, which is the death curse of our beloved partner, Famous Smoke Shop. Get active vote tell these people that their votes come with consequences you want to keep taking shit away from us first of all ain't no goddamn teenagers ordering (laughs) using tncc 20 and ordering (laughs) premium cigars off of famous smoke shop this is if you watch the freaking hand roll documentary you'll understand that they're not paying 18 dollars for a cigar they're buying a 99 cent blunt correct there are folks in this country that don't have access to a brick-and-mortar tobacco shop. The only way they can get premium cigars is through these yeah. online retailers who've been here established for decades. A bill just passed to threaten that. Let your voice be heard. Let them know premium cigars are not flavored cigars. Premium cigars are not cheap-ass cigars used to make weed. Premium cigars are not anything close to fucking e-cigs, vape, or any of that nonsense, step up because, hey, if you don't and they take this shit away from us, guess what? They're going to start coming for silly shit that we think is silly. They're going to start coming for your motorcycles. They're going to start coming for your you know, your fucking cauliflower pizza. They're going to come for everything. You give give them a little bit of slack, they're going to take it all. And this is bullshit and it's time to stand up. Promo code TNCC20, while you can, famousmokeshot.com. Give us some links, Ted. Well, now I'm kind of like wanting to go on a severe political rant after that. Do it. I'm not going to stop you. No, no. I'm incapable of stopping you. I'm listening to Reason. Join us on Instagram at TNCC underscore podcast. Join us on Facebook, Tuesday Night Cigar Club. Or join us on YouTube, Tuesday Night Cigar Club. I was going to let him go nuts. And by the way, you fucking small government Republicans, get out of my cigar buying business. You talk about freedom... Stay right. You say that you need it, but yet a Republican-controlled Senate is allowing this to happen. This a is Republican, not gone. Uh, no, it this is. This has not gone to the Senate. 
or what is passed to the Senate. We'll see what happens. Oh God, it'll die. I'm just saying. So the fucking Democratic House passed this stuff. That doesn't let you fucking Republicans off the hook. I don't care if the Democrats pass this stuff. You had four years of Democrat of how of Republican control. You could have stopped this, and you didn't stop it. Can't put this one on Obama. Come oh, on. All things Get are out of my bedroom and get off of my online habits. Until they go to committee. What's he doing <laughs> in his bedroom? I don't know. I'm just saying people are looking at me in my bedroom. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to know. If you're not gonna tell us what you're doing in your bedroom, I, I kind of want. I, you know, I'm gonna get us out of here. I'm just saying, I, if you want to so, talk, if you're gonna talk I'm about so freedom, torn. if you're gonna wear I, those t-shirts that talk about freedom, if you're gonna post your freaking freedom memes, then preach freedom, vote for freedom. What do you do in your bedroom? I, I don't know, but I voted for Kodos. <laughs> <laughs> I voted for Trojan. Alright, this is getting weird. Uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, thank you, Pete Johnson. Thank Absolutely. you, filmmakers involved with hand, hand rolled. Three thumbs up. Uh, you did an awesome job, guys. La Verite. I can't, I didn't smoke it. Two thumbs up from you guys? Absolutely. Yes. My La Duena, I think, was good. I couldn't really taste it. Uh, enter Night, the Metallica beer. I'm going to go halfway because. I'm gonna go, I'll give you a half thumb. Seriously, just call it a pale ale. It's fine. I'll give you a half thumb. But Blanc Chablis. We're going to find it. We're going to find your bad beer one of these days. And we are just going it to ain't tell tonight. I give yes. the Chablis three thumbs up. Uh, folks, we only have a handful of shows left this year. So uh, please keep tuning in. Uh, thank you for tuning in. And in the meantime, like... Tut alluded to a second ago, the most important thing you can do at any cost necessary is never let the wings of liberty ever, ever lose a feather. Jack Burton said so, and I kind of judge everything in my life on what would Jack Burton do. Let me tell you what old pork chop will do. Don't do it. Fight. Fight for your right to party. Mm. You got to. God bless America. God bless America. God bless Pete Johnson. God bless the Tuesday Night Cigar Club. Sayonara, motherfuckers. To learn more about the time I formed a thrash metal band in my parents' basement called Ping Pong and the Satanic Suck Machines, please head over to eBay and hunt down our never-released debut album, Hell is hot, and so is your mom. In hindsight, me taking up the drums, especially a drum kit featuring double bass, was probably doomed to fail considering my restless leg syndrome. But I was hoping that once we hit the road on tour and the groupies started showing up, it might put my restless penis syndrome to good use for a change. Ah, what could have been? And uh, in the meantime... To learn more about the cigars and other libations enjoyed on tonight's episode, you can visit TatuateCigars.com, StoneBrewing.com, and Unabrew.com. That's U-N-I-B-R-O-U-E.com. Unabrew. For more on O'Brien's Irish Pub, the live music leader in Central Texas, please visit O'Brien'sTemple.com and download their free smartphone app, where you'll find full beer listings including over 40 on tap, menu information, and a calendar of upcoming live events. To listen and purchase music heard on tonight's program, check out www.fritzbeermusic.com. 
Thank you for listening to the Tuesday Night Cigar Club podcast. This is Keith A. Howell saying until next time, friends, unless we see you sooner at the pub. So keep it smoky. And for God's sake, keep it ballsy as well.